Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 167th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that moved to Japan last week and retired on that sweet, sweet anime money. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host, as always, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good afternoon, James, and good afternoon to our special guest who is joining us for the whole show, uh, Jason All. How are you doing, Jason? I'm doing fantastic. I didn't realize uh, that being able to join you for the whole show was that special an honor, but I guess when your Fast Finance podcast is three hours, you probably don't want to subject a guest to all that. That's that's <laughs> yeah, exactly if, the if, case, yes. <laughs> if, if we hold you off till the fourth segment, you might be half asleep at 1 a.m. by the time we get around to it, so... Yeah, normally. Well, that's all right. You're only hurting yourself because I haven't quite finished my MTG price article for the week. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, most of our li- we're very popular amongst the people that are trapped inside Kafka-esque bureauc- bureaucratic nightmares that are sitting in hallways for eight or nine hours at a time, trying to get medical care in the United States of America and what have you. Yeah, uh, yeah. People always tell us they're like, I-, "I have gotten way more requests to keep the podcast long than I have to shorten it." Yep. It's true. Like a 10 to 1. And for the record, for anyone listening, my goal when I pitched this cast to James like three and a half years ago was like 20 minutes long and just kind of blow through stuff really quick. But I hadn't actually had any conversations with James, like naturally flowing <laughs> conversations. And then like we sat down to record the first episode. I was like, oh, okay. Maybe we should change the name. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I mean, we're history. definitely seeing people on on Reddit say stuff like, "Why does Brainstorm Brewer need to be a whole hour? It's just filler." You guys are like, "Yeah, you really only need like fifteen minutes to talk about finance in a week." Yeah, yep. You saw what happened. We we keep ourselves to an hour sometimes, unless it's a set review, and uh, it's all filler. I, so I'm surprised <laughs> you guys go that short, especially because there's the three of you, and you spend so much time talking about non magic stuff it seems like you could easily hit our listeners don't give a crap about mtg finance which is fine Mm -hmm. you know we're we're not making uh, people who like mtg finance like our podcast but people who don't like mtg finance like our podcast also i think we found our audience a nice overlapping venn diagram you guys have got the (laughs) you guys have got a good niche there uh really people who care about finance people who don't care about finance they both can listen and that's really capturing all sides of the market right that's 100 percent of people really yeah Yeah, it is that's pretty good the segment of the population who doesn't care about magic finance is like seven billion people and appealing to them (laughs) was a a good move like a solid move (laughs) it's a pro pro uh, pro market share grab all right uh our show is produced by mtgprice.com the leading mtg finance community Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles of some of the best financial minds in the hobby. It occurs to me that I said hello to Jason, but I didn't tell you that it's Jason All uh, at Jason E. All on Twitter. Uh, he writes for MTG Price and a bevy of other sites. Uh, do you want to tell us what those other sites are, Jason? Gathering Magic. That's it? It's just Gathering Magic? That's it, yeah. Do you yeah, write yeah. for EDH? I wrote, you- I wrote for Cool Stuff, Inc., uh, which what that's used to be Gathering Magic. That's convenient it, because <laughs> that's our sponsor. Yeah, Cool Stuff is a great site. I've been writing for them since 
2013, maybe? On that it's note. Been a minute. MDG Fast uh, Finances. Oh, hold on. Oh, 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 did I step on your did I step on your thing? You can go ahead and tell your story. He, he tri- no, 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 no. Far be it for me to step on somebody's pitch. <laughs> you can you can run this through your evaluation criteria. MGG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering, single, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the two websites I write for and I haven't been on in two years. <laughs> yeah, we, we already found out in the uh, precast uh, discussion that Jason hasn't checked in on the Discord in some time. He's a little behind on the intel. That's not true. I, it blows up my phone every day. <laughs> I'm always getting Discord notifications and then I got to go look to see why James tagged everyone. And that happens so, a lot, but it's it's always good information. So I always check it. I, I want you I haven't to... muted notifications like I wanted to because it's always... Uh, juicy info so if you're not uh, someone who has access to the mtg price discord that's uh, something you should rectify and you can do that becoming pro trader at mtgprice.com yeah that's you can true. read my articles 48 hours early wow we didn't even yep, have to pay that's... you to say all this well we are yes you do but, but we didn't ask him to <laughs> right, so i want you to know Jan- jason that it was about seven hours after that discord had launched and i messaged james and i was like you gotta cool it with the everyone pings because you're gonna drive everyone nuts and he's like no (laughs) shut up i started the discord i'm gonna do what i want i'm like okay and just immediately muted all notifications on that channel because i was like and and now travis specs constantly (laughs) yeah that's fine like that's fine that's fine like i I guess you know what it is is i live in front of a computer 24 hours a day like if i'm awake i have my phone or computer in front of me so it's not hard to check in on sources when I want to. And then this way I'm not being bothered by them when I'm not interested by them. But I guess for people who don't live my life, they would appreciate them more than I do. But I don't like unnecessary notifications. I have no notifications at the top of my phone ever. Like yeah, it shows I mean, up, I go deal with it. The nice thing about it is you can mute whatever you want inside Discord. Um, and the people that want to 24-7 finance get to do that. Um, I mean, just today there was at least 10 or 12 ridiculously good specs bunch of cards that were at tipping points that got knocked off before we could possibly add them to our list yeah i don't doubt it i am i i i part of it too is that as tempting as all of this is i am closing on my house in three days and uh don't really have a lot of money to throw at all this type of all these types of well stuff. i mean you're, you're still you're still buying dual lands you're just buying them in reality that's true that's true an acre of uh scrubland no, I don't live in the Midwest. It's not scrubland. But you're um, in Buffalo, so I figure that's it's kind of all scrubland, isn't it? That, uh, I can't imagine living in Buffalo and like trying to crap on the Midwest. <laughs> we are we are the gateway. We're the gateway to the Rust Belt, I think, or the gateway or something like that. Like that's one of the names for this area. Oh uh, yeah, I actually have no love lost for this city, but circumstances are what they are. Um, it is a frozen toilet for sure. Yeah, yeah. Although I, w- I think Michigan's colder, right? Like uh, parts of Michigan are definitely worse than Buffalo is in terms of winter. I mean, sure, like the Upper Peninsula, I would say, but like I'm not digging my car out of four feet of snow. It's, mm. it's kind of like it's kind of like arguing about the difference between dog shit and cat shit. But okay, yeah. I mean, tr- truth be told, Buffalo has a lot less snow in winter than people give it credit for. Like Syracuse beats Buffalo on most of those metrics pretty much every year running and has since I've been alive. But 
people don't know Syracuse like they know Buffalo. So Buffalo is just sort of the the target of upstate New York. I mean, when you guys get hit, you do get hit. Like <laughs> a a a, buff, a blizzard that comes in west of Buffalo is no joke. Uh no, I yeah 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 for sure for sure. Uh, but I don't. That's got to be true of like a lot of the northern states, though, right? I don't think that's limited to us. I'm at roughly the same latitude as Toronto, and uh, sometimes the lake protects us, and sometimes the lake makes storms worse. Yeah. So we, and, and you know, know it's a double edged sword. On and you know, on the topic of snow, we could go backwards down the list just to be wacky with Jason around the top movers this week. Why don't we dive right in here? Thermopod <laughs> from Cold Snap. That's a snow card from 50 cents to $10. That's a 1900% gain. Did you buy 60 of those last week? You clever person that thinks that you're getting snow cards in Modern Horizons. You might be right, but the problem is I don't think anyone's ever going to buy your thermopods. Ah, that is pretty dumb. That is a, I mean, I guess so. It's a five drop four, three. Yeah. That's it. It doesn't have doesn't have any special no that's not true other than being snow that's not true it's a five drop four three that has sacrifice a creature add one red to your pool whoa which is which is to be fair a fairly legitimate piece of text uh the problem is is it being snow doesn't seem like it would if snow were in horizons doesn't seem like it would be terribly relevant on the card and i feel like if you were going to use this com that line of text in modern that already would have come to fruition um so and it's a common right yeah common so like i can't even go look for these because i don't have a box of commons laying around i put all those in the recycling bin <laughs> buy list is currently at seven cents i think we can move right along yeah so who all right so, so i was a, like there's a lot of dealer confidence in that ten dollars <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah well if they bump their buy list from three cents to seven all right you just gotta you just gotta wait for the like the super smart folks on the floor at the gp to buy up six thousand of these and ship them to japan and you'll be gold there you go i would like to start out with james pronouncing the name of this next card i'm gonna go with autothon worm what do you think jason autothon worm yeah i don't actually know either i think james is probably pretty close though autothon autothon i'm thinking the, i'm thinking the ch is is mostly silent that's a pretty rough word well it's like in school or autothon maybe it's autothon hmm i don't know man what a dumb name for a card agreed non-foils out of ravnica a dollar to eight uh also so this is in in modern right it's yeah, part of the is, modern combo kill yeah this is part it, of the, was, the new turn one modern combo kill yeah it was already in the grishold uh brand decks because you pitched this to nourishing shoal and gain an obscene amount of life was this and what they were using for that? And then you use that to draw your deck, etc. Were they they were using yeah. World Spine Worm, weren't they? Wasn't that one better? But uh, Autocton has the the higher CMC, so it's actually two uh, Grizzlebrand activations, whereas World Spine Worm is just one. But why would they have used fifteen versus eleven? World Why would they have used World Spine Worm in the first place then? Uh, oh, because if it gets shuffled into your graveyard. It you know what it was? Right. I think because part of the plan was that you would occasionally through the breach world spine worm, which would swing as a fifteen fifteen trample, and then turn into then three five five tramples. Yeah, yeah, but you don't need it here in, this, in the new version. Okay, that makes sense. I believe that, Jason. But, uh, but the worm is better if you're if you're purely trying to gain life because it's an extra uh, grizzle brand activation. 
Yep, agreed. I, and I definitely had when I played that deck, I definitely found myself wishing that World Spine gave you a little more life. Um, okay, what, what's our next card, Jason? Oh, this is a feather based card. That's why you asked me. It is a Zodahedron Grinder, which uh, basically non tuppled in foil. Um, <laughs> even though it's been printed twice, most recently in Masters twenty five. Uh, this is just uh, feather speculation. This is. You know, just a, a card that was, uh, you know, in the Feather deck just because you want that effect. And Zod is actually a little bit better than Feather if you're going a little bit wide because you can all of a sudden bandage your whole squad and then like uh, summoning breath or something like that. Um, so, uh, you know, it's fine. Um, I think it's probably a real price. I expect this to hang in there a little bit better than some of these other movers. Agreed. I, I think two to three dollars is probably a safe place to land, and I think you could get the buy list up to maybe two two bucks. So if you snag these at fifty cents, you can probably quadruple up on buy list. I have a Zada deck, and it's really good. Um, I like it quite a bit. It's it's fun, I should say. Um, having played it, I will say Feather needs to be played like a combo deck. Don't think that it's not a combo deck. So you're gonna want mana rocks and explosive turns. Uh, also, I very much appreciate the uh, what was it non tuppled. That yeah. was that was a that was so, a real good one. I like that. So so get this on CK the buy list for the foils goes as follows: Masters twenty five are still at sixty five cents, so the confidence isn't there yet. Mm-hmm. The Battle for Zendikar originals are a buck sixty three, but here's one of these really interesting cases where they're paying way more for the promo: seven eighty in credit for the promo for the foils. Foil promo, yeah, Whew. the pre release. So huge gap, like five times more they're willing to pay for the promo. And my theory is that even though We've seen this unfurling on various buy lists lately, and it's because the obviously most people prefer the non-promos. They don't like the gold text, but they're so much harder to come by. And I think we're going to see some of this with the Japanese war alt art planeswalkers as well, because they're going to start to show up in greater quantity in North America and put some downward pressure on prices. But those promos from Japan only showed up in you know on pre-release day and only in fifty percent of the cases. So they are exceedingly rare and significantly more rare than the pack foils in that case as well. Yeah. My uh, dog agrees with it's, you. It's a weird <laughs> thing that like I can't see anybody really preferring it. But just in terms of sheer rarity, they ran out of stock of those a, a long time ago. It, yeah. I, I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but it does, do, does seem like the market has started to adjust uh, with relation to the date stamped promos where... I remember years and years ago, they were always way less valuable than pack foils. And even after they introduced um, the variable promos where you could get every rare and mythic in the set date stamped, they still hadn't quite caught up yet. But over the last year to two years, it does seem like that gap has finally started to close where the date stamp promos are usually around the same price as a pack foil or even more expensive in some cases. Um, Despite the fact that they've been just as rare today as they were back in Battle for Zendikar, it's taken a while for that to shift. I don't know what the reason for that is, but it's just something I've noticed. Well, when everyone's getting the exact same promo, there are just so many copies. Yeah, that was a different story entirely. And that's one of the things that's interesting with War 2 is that even putting all the Japanese alt arts aside, because you could get any of the 36 Planeswalkers, including Uncommons, there is each of those promos is significantly more rare. So I think that almost all of them are reasonable targets if they're the same price as the pack foil, because I suspect that we're going to see the same kind of buy list action. Yeah. Um, You're not okay. even upset if you get one of those Uncommon Planeswalkers because they're all so effective and limited. Yeah, well, like some and, of the rare ones is like, oh, I got a Teferi, I wanted Ashiok. Like, uh, some of those uncommons just really break limited wide open. 
If you stick a turn three Sahili, it's really tough to lose. Is Ashiok that good and limited? Oh, when your opponent has a 40 card deck? Yeah, it turns out it yeah. is. Uh, Especially if you can put the uh, Kaya's Ghost form on it or bounce it somehow. Oh, does he do it again? It just his, he mills people for four. Is that what what he does? Uh, yeah. yeah, mills for four. Okay, yeah, that's right. So um, you're starting the game at 33 cards. If you play a single card draw spell, you're basically dead to an Ashiok. Yeah, yeah. I, I forgot that he he partially mills you. Yeah, mills is brutal. We actually found in a cube that a powered cube that I used to play that the card like most correlated. With success, the card when cast most correlated with victory was uh, Jace Five. Um, I don't even remember which one that is at this point, but he was the one when he comes into play, he mills ten or twenty because like you'd resolve him on five and activate him, and your opponent was probably dead to drawing almost immediately. Uh, whereas like a Black Lotus, you could resolve and cast like a five drop, and they just tear it and move on with their day. The other thing is that these uncommon planeswalkers, several of them are already over ten dollars, pushing fifteen, and the alt arts are well over a hundred. Like this is just completely unprecedented. Yeah, that's lunacy. And I don't think anybody thinks what I think is the most insane uncommon walker in the set is as good as I do. I think Jing Yangu has got the most decks it can go into right away, and it it immediately impacts the board and turns all your like coiling oracles into mana dorks and nobody's as excited about that card as i am but how do i spell his name i think that card uh j-i-a-n-g-y-a-n-g-g-u okay there we go yeah it's only showing up in 105 reported decks on edh rec so far which is pretty meaningless right now because we don't have that many still still forming yeah so oh, since we're going to yeah, talk I mean, about EDH Rec today, I, I think uh, on a different way to look at that, because I, I have a bone to pick with a lot of people who just use the raw number like James just did. Well, we're not I think on second to do we're, we're going to give you a whole yet. platform for that. We've got a soapbox <laughs> set up. It's got streamers on no, it. No. We're ready to go. But, but what I will say is instead of doing that, go to the War of the Spark. So go to EDH Rec, click on Sets, bring up War of the Spark. Yeah, I'm Scroll down. You'll see about how many cards total that is so comp- the number one card is karn's bastion which is in 476 decks so that yep. 100 and so number for jing yangu you think about it it's about a quarter as popular yep. as uh, the most popular card in the set and um you look at the cards around it sark and the madness is in the same amount of decks and gideon blackblades in the same amount of decks so that gives it a little bit more context it's as playable as something rare and impactful like sarkin or gideon or soren or finale of promise yep. so that's I think contextual. I think if you're going to say how many decks it's in, I think you should say the the cards immediately around it, stuff like that. So just say it's as, sure. it's in almost as many decks as Kiora. Fair or something and like that. And I mean, I'm I'm totally on the same page with you in terms of how useful the card is because each creature you control with a plus one plus one counter on it is a bird's of paradise. <laughs> fits fits in a ton of decks, as you said. And because putting, people are building Mowu, they're building Rolesk, and that's just from this set, not counting the fact that it's going to get jammed in Pirantuthi and Azuri, and there, there is no shortage of Simic decks that are uh, attractive using the one-one counters, and the fact that we have the uh, Simic Ascendancy, which is a new way to win the game. Um, basically, your Simic Ascendancy turns uh, creatures into mana dorks. Right. So all of a sudden, your utility guys like uh, Coiling Oracle and your, um, you know, uh, Eternal Witness, and all of a sudden they they get buffed until they can attack reasonably, but like also they they have other uses. 
I, I, so all of a sudden cards like uh you know awakening are a little better too i should really find room for this card in um in cdc because going suddenly having six or seven birds of paradise would be really useful um you know kind of play out a couple cards real quick and then two turns later you have an army of four fours uh or seven sevens or whatever because they're zombies so um i should really make room for that okay well, but let's move able on to put the counters on something is really useful because not a ton of cards do that they like they a lot of the, the the utility cards in those decks boost the stuff that already has a counter but I've, for god's sake three years ago in um Vorel the hulk clade i was playing dragon's blood Dragon's Blood. I have to look that right. up. Yeah, you don't even know what that does. So, like, putting counters on stuff is it's non-trivial. It's it's a little tougher to come by. Oh damn! Oh, it's Ron Spencer. That's why I don't know what that card does. I won't look at his cards. <laughs> it's a three mana artifact. Three. Then you pay three and tap to put a one-one counter on a creature. That is a lot of work. Six mana for a counter. It's a lot of work, but it pays <laughs> off. All right, because you just need that so, first counter to get your sage hours going. So, yeah. Jason, if I if I tell you I can throw. 22 of these in a card over in Japan for 65 cents US with the alt art. Are we in agreement that that's probably a snap buy? The alt art? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The foils are sold out completely, but that goes with for pretty much all of the cards <laughs> at this point. People are digging deep. Okay. 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 Slesnia Sanctuary out of Ravnica. Nope, nope, nope. Chancellor of the oh, Tangle. Right, yeah. Out I of can... New Phyrexia. Uh, going from 75 cents to 5 bucks. 500% uh, plus. This is also a Neo brand card. Turn one modern combo kill. We may as well kill them all off at once. Allosaurus Rider. 2 to $12. Same deal. Um, um, and then also Eldritch Evolution. 350 to 550. 57%. Exactly the same. They all fit in the same deck. So I want to jump in on Chancellor and Allosaurus Rider. I sold Allosaurus Riders at like 5 or 7. Um, I haven't sold any. I haven't listed any at 10. I just listed 2. But I know that you can at least get 5 or 7 for them. Chancellor of the Tangle. Actually, while we, while we were recording, I was going through my bulk and I found 9 of these. But the low on TCG player right now is like 350. Um, so I didn't bother to list any of mine uh, because it's not i'm not putting cards in envelopes for 350 but uh it is tempting i guess you know a couple more dollars and i'll, I'll list mine um and maybe if you have a big stack you send them probably to buy list i yeah, mean you might be able to get people 50. to yeah you might be able to get people to buy a place at but like do you want really want to risk people buying ones and twos because they might have some floating around already it's annoying yep now yeah, it's like now it's lesney sanctuary out of ravnica Foils 2 to 12. Uh, definitely part of the Amulet Titan deck. Um, I question whether you could buy $2 pack foil crew lands from Ravnica. That seems questionable. There, there must have been just a small handful lying around. The other ones aren't moving like this. It's just the originals. So somebody yeah. just decided to go after what was ex exceedingly low supply. And well, how many important. times was it reprinted in foil versus how many times it was reprinted? <sighs> it was in at least one Modern Master set. Uh, yeah, that's true, and possibly somewhere else. Um, but I know they access to the World Wide Web. It could look this information up. Yeah, it's I don't only look cards up. Jason's right. It's a whole bunch of like non-foil printings, and then Iconic Masters, uh, Modern Masters 2015, and Guilds of Ravnica. Yeah, so I mean, it's uh, sorry, been sorry, not Guilds of Ravnica. Guilds of Ravnica, the Guild kits, but that must have been non-foil as well. So just Iconic Masters and Modern Masters 2015 after Ravnica City of Guilds, which is the original Ravnica. Yeah. So three but, times. 
Yeah, and I mean, even though IMA and MMA weren't massive releases, that's still a good supply because it was an uncommon in both of those, and it was a common in Ravnica. I still don't think originals, which were John Avon, by the way, were two dollars, but maybe it was. There's a bunch of Modern Masters 2015s under two bucks, and supply is moderate, so yeah, looks pretty specific to that version. Okay, you want to give us row I mean, eleven I'm seeing, here? I'm seeing HP foils on TCG Player for two bucks. Sure, sure, seems, HP seems fine if you want one. Um, Jason, what's row 11 there for me? Oh, Veilstone Amulet. Uh, this is a bad card in Feather. <laughs> but, um, it was identified as a potential Feather thing. Um, I don't expect it to stick per se, because I, I don't really think it's going to get played in the deck. Because it's sort of counterproductive. Um, but like, people that were playing, uh, I, I'm mostly seeing this in, um, uh, God, what's that guy's name? Yukor the Prisoner? Or is that the one where if you target something, it dies? Uh, People were seeing it in that deck just so you could keep them from like targeting your creatures with spells and killing them. So you I can know, play Veilstone Amulet as, as a way to protect your creatures without targeting them directly and killing them. I know what you're talking about because I have him in my like Rakdos deck or something like that. Um, the problem, the problem with this is that it doesn't work until your the trigger resolves, so people can just fire off any instant speed abilities they want in response, and and do whatever it is that they need to do, and then your veilstone resolves. But whoops, they already swords your feather anyways. So yeah. like Hirobi's death swales the card I was thinking yeah. of the prisoner. Yeah, I mean, yeah. um, it, the the thing is, it's it's time spiral or it's a time spiral block. It's from future sight, so. You know, like uh, a lot of those rares that just any sort of any sort of uh, talk about them and they they sort of can pop fairly easily because um, the, you know, the the supply is going to be pretty low. Uh, I don't like Veilstone in uh, Feather decks and only like about one in eight of the decks on EDH rec uh, is even running it. So I think this is purely speculative and uh, I don't think it'll stick because I, so- I just I don't I don't think the cards all that good in the deck. Uh, so Bylist is currently at Bylist is currently at three twenty five. So if you got in earlier, back down the chain, you probably just exit and run for the hills. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. At the risk, enjoy your double up. At the risk of uh, biting in the segment four here, have you found Jason people like po- cards being popular in e- in decks on EDH track that you look at and go? No, like I, I know that this card isn't that great in the deck, and this is just. I people. have hired people to write article series about that. <laughs> okay, because I have noticed so, that uh, something I did talk about at the top was that I'm also the content manager on EDH Rec, which means I've hired all the writers, I manage all of that. Basically, the fact that that the reason EDH Rec has articles is because they hired me to do that. So yeah, absolutely, there are various effects, various reasons some stuff uh, shows up. In lists that really shouldn't, or more than it should, and uh, we can talk about that in the other segment. But yeah, absolutely, there's there's stuff that I don't think should be there. All right, I feel better about that because some a lot of these lists I look at, and I, you know, I don't really have a great way to evaluate it because sometimes a card plays differently than you would expect it to, for better or worse. But there are a couple of commanders who I can look through and be like, no, this card is bad. This shouldn't be in the deck. Or I'm like, oh, this card doesn't show up, but it absolutely should because it's one of the best cards in this deck. Um, but I mean, we're we're talking like. The wisdom of the crowds is usually pretty good because like, yeah, one in eight lunatics maybe jams a Veilstone amulet when they're under 200 lists anyway. So that that number is so low. But like 
if you're seeing eerie uh eerie interlude in 75 percent of the decks it's like what are the odds that three out of every four people building the deck is a complete idiot i mean extremely high but that doesn't mean that eerie interlude is bad just yeah. <laughs> if, if it's shown up in as many decks as mirror wing dragon chances are you know the the signature cards and the the uh the top cards have a tendency i have more confidence in those than just the random stuff that like the deck is so it's so streamlined that like to get 20 different cards in the deck you're gonna have to scrape the bottom of the barrel and come up with some stuff that's in like five percent mm. of the decks yeah just it's... because like look if you're gonna show 25 artifacts you're, how many artifacts really go in feather yeah you know which makes sense so. actually all right uh days undoing out of magic origins three dollars to twelve dollars i guess conley woods was running Yay. around with some narset deck right yeah <laughs> yeah woods, I, my uh, new I bought hero. the cards it... for that as soon as i saw uh my buddy tweet that list how he... many uh how many you got over there james oh 20 or 30 but that was that was because was it like right spec wrong reason right? like this was just because i figured at some point somebody would break a time twister um and here we are there are no misses there are only longer term specs fair so conley woods is running this crazy brew where i think he went like four 13 and two or 14 and one or something across three different leagues on stream um yeah where he was it's got commandeer it's got the new narset which has been overperforming like crazy everybody overlooked that card and Um, notion thief notion thief and days undoing so you basically can lock them out of their draw step because he was using lore broker. So basically you could like force it so that you're drawing a card and they're not. <laughs> you can daze undoing and they don't get any benefit. You can do all sorts of nastiness. And it looked like a total pile, but it actually like he he defeated real decks <laughs> and played real games and it was actually doing reasonably well. The other thing is daze undoing shows up in the neo brand list that's on here. It's usually a one of in the sideboard. Um, and because it's a mythic that's at least what 3 years old, 4 years old, um you know not not a ton of supply it didn't take very long for it to drain um is the conley deck real and modern probably not um should you be selling days undoing yeah probably i'm disappointed to say that i don't own any i uh, never know Bilas what is, i end bylas is at 585 credit so easy double up if you were in early no, yeah if you if you did as i said and not as I you did as I said, not as I did. You did a good job. Um, <laughs> moving down the list, this is my, this was uh, this common deer from Cold Snap. Um, non foils eight to about twenty two dollars. Uh, I see you wrote the Narset lock. Was he playing it? Was he playing common okay. deer in that list? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this common was deer and disrupting shoal. Okay, because yeah, so I definitely I definitely talked about common deer like last week or the week before. I was so, like, oh, this is an interesting card because like you can steal the card and liberate it out of your Tron opponents and stuff like that. Yeah, so that's pretty much what he did. He he stole an Ugin one time and he stole a Jace the Mind Sculptor another time and they were both auto-concedes. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. was disgusting. I saw this and I was like, ooh, did this get bought because of me? And the answer is no. But I was still right that the card was worth considering. Uh, I well, just did not know how quickly I would be right. The interesting thing with these two decks, right, the, the Narset Lock deck from Conley and the Neo Brand deck, um, is that both of them are made up of a bunch of total garbage bulk cards that languished for years and years that have no purpose outside of their specific slots in these extremely weird decks. 
And that means there's almost no supply of any of these, which is why they make up 70% of the list this week. Yep. Psychotic Fury out of Dissension, non-foils, a dollar and change to 250. That's Feather. It's another targeted spell, whatever. Who cares? Uh, this one's a little more interesting. Chandra Fire Artisan, War of the Spark card. Uh, non-foils, <laughs> 2 to $4 for a double up. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, we already have Jason on this week, so we couldn't get Dan Fournier as well. But James was chomping at the bit. It, like I, I kid you not, like I was seeing tweets about like Chandra doing well uh, in like MTGO lists, and then my Twitter dings, and it's a DM from James. I'm like, I know exactly what this is uh, because uh, Dan didn't really love this card, um, and it turns out that basically there are decks that want experimental frenzy, and there are decks that want what is it, the Sarkin or something that does something similar. But any deck that makes Red Mana that doesn't want one of those two cards, it turns out wanted Chandra Fire Artisan. Yeah. Uh- Tamio saw a similar percentage yeah. increase this week as well. Oh yeah, sure. and during our set review, um, we ran. I ran three planeswalkers by Dan for playability in in standard and or modern, and it was Chandra, Tamio, and Nurset. And he was lukewarm to not interested in all of them. And then I pinged him with Chandra winning the SCG Open with like four uh, four copies in the list that won. And his response was that he may have spent some of his winnings from his most recent tournament buying up a bunch of Chandra's at like 250 or something. <laughs> and I, and I, I sent him the, the reminder of the cart that I checked out on Magic Card Market where I bought like 80 Chandra's at 48 cents or something. So I don't understand. Tamio is doing well now. Where is this? How is this card good? That card seems so bad. It's amazing in the Wilderness Reclamation Nexus of Eight decks because it digs you to exactly. your combo fast. It's, in EDH, it's, it's garbage, right? Because you, you you look at four cards yeah. and you have to find you have to find a card that you named, otherwise it does nothing. But in a in a card that in a deck that has a bunch of four ofs, where getting to one or you probably have one of the pieces you need in hand and you're looking for the other one, it does a lot of work. I okay, well, I mean, I knew it wasn't good in EDH. I guess I guess in the Wilderness Reclamation decks, exactly. I suppose that well, makes sense. Actually, I have a question about that, Jason. Do you think people will run it just for the static ability in EDH? Um. No sacrifice, no discard. It's, it's currently in more decks than uh, Jing Yangu, so who knows, man? But uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know, because like it's in Muldrotha decks overwhelmingly. You know, that's uh, got to be for the Muldrotha minus three, and right? Div decks, but like I would think if this pops at all, it'll be because people are running it in uh, in Atraxa, and I don't think there's room. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's, it's nice that she gets comes in with ten loyalty counters under a doubling season, but that's true of pretty much every planeswalker. Being able in Maldratha, being able to reuse her Eternal Witness form for one extra mana is okay. Hmm. <laughs> and anyway, they're both like over two dollars buy list, so those European orders are just going to be bonkers cakes once they land in my hot little hands. Okay, uh, expansion explosion uh, out of Guilds of Ravnica. Uh, three and change up to about 550 or so. This is on the standard teamer list. Uh, there's an infinite combo. Well, not an infinite. There is an infinite combo with Ralzarek, but it's a lot of, it's kind of a lot of work to put that together. It's like two expansion explosions and a Ralzarek, and I'm not going to walk you through the combo, but involves expansion <laughs> we'll explosion. Probably screw it up anyway. Yeah, copying each other. But my, my buddy, um, who plays a lot of magic and, uh, he won a GP a little while ago. Was telling me that it's totally legitimate because you, uh, especially in like the Wilderness Reclamation decks, because you can just explosion people for like 
12 damage. Just like, it just happens. It's just there. Otherwise um, known as enough. Say again? Enough. Yeah, it's, enough. It's known as enough. Yeah. Right? So, and it's like, you don't have to work for it. Like, you just play a normal game of Magic, and then sometimes you're just able to do that to people. So, apparently, it's, it's got quite the little home here in Standard for at least the next couple months, for as relevant although, as that is. Although, I'm sure there's going to be plenty of fights at F&M where people don't stack their triggers properly. <laughs> and judges get the calls completely wrong. Uh, yeah, one well, half to Judges have imagined. had it pretty easy since Time Spiral Block, so... <laughs> Uh, what's uh, next, James? So I think this is interesting. Nicol Bolas the Ravager has held an extremely high price tag for a mythic that's only seen occasional play in standard. Jason, do you attribute this to combination of casual and EDH play? Not per se, no. Because uh, I think it wouldn't have it wouldn't have moved in EDH per se for any particular reason. Like nothing new. Came along, except maybe Nico well, Bolas the dragon, the the dragon god coming out, making people want to build the deck. I, I, I don't know. See, I, see, I, think I wrote about this. I wrote about this like last week or the week prior, and I said the non foils were a pick because uh, all the new Nicol Bowles cards could push people to build Nicol Bowles decks in EDH, like a very thematic. You got several more cards this time, and I'm like, Nicol Bowles Ravager is probably your best commander for that deck. And legit, I'm, I'm not bil- seeing data to back that up, but like, I, I think casual players are going to be just in, as inclined to build Nico Bolas decks as uh, as EDH players, and casual players will buy four of these. The other thing is, it is seeing now now seeing play again in Standard. So like, it's all of those things plus the fact that Grixis Control is now a thing in Standard because Dragon Gods significantly um, has is actually not that hard to cast because they gave that deck uh, a lot of mana fixing tools. Um, because we have that Planeswalker land that lets you um, tap for two colors of uh, any Planeswalker. So there's a bunch of uh, different ways that uh, Nicol Bolas can be built around in Standard, even though we didn't see him in the top eight at uh, the SCG. Okay. Um, okay. So we already talked about Elv- Eldritch Evolution. The only other one is, I think, a Jason Alt pick, Thief of Blood. Uh, this copy in particular from Commander Anthology uh, from $2 to $3. Um, I ran out and bought 50 or 60 copies in Europe at like $0.09 cents the other day. Yeah. Um, I can't remember. Did you mention this on a recent BSB? Or was it in um, article? No, I think I just retweeted uh, the uh, Echo MTG tweet. I called this like in the set review in 2015. I was like, this card is insane. But like nobody wants to pay six mana, I guess, for uh, for what is it? The whatever black card Aether Snap. Yeah, nobody wants to pay six mana mm-hmm. for an Aether Snap. Um, Thief of Blood is, I almost considered playing, uh, the black spike cannibal, the three mana that takes all the counters off creatures, which is really insane. Because back then there weren't that many, there was like the other spike creatures and that was it. But the way every Simic deck has one, one counters, spike cannibals like a beating, but Thief of Blood takes counters off of Planeswalkers too. So I think people are finally like, all right, I'm on board. People were buying Aether Snap, which I thought was dumb because that's not going to get played in EDH. But Thief of Blood could, you know, because it becomes a huge flying vampire after that, and you can, you know, beat down with it. So you basically pull the attracts a player's pants completely off and then kill them with a huge vampire, which I think is cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's probably like, uh, Aether Snap doesn't do that, right? And there's probably like ten or twelve different commanders that you still are going to have a significant impact against. And you might have tribal synergies, as you mentioned. I mean, the buy list on this is at between 70 and 85 cents, which doesn't sound like a lot, but those European copies are going to trade in at massive upside. Because 
It's just like, clearly nobody's playing EDH in Europe or very, very few people. It so does that gap. That gap has been open for years. It does seem like it's going to be great just by virtue of the fact that you are going to get randomly paid a lot of the times. Like you can play it. People yeah. might be interested in putting in their deck because it hammers and attracts a player or uh, the guy who has a lot of planeswalkers or what have you. But like you're oftentimes going to just be like, oh, it has this application. I didn't put it in here for this application, but it worked. Uh, you know, it just happened to to be effective. There's it probably a bunch of cards you don't want to remove from counters off. Ascendancy. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. All right. So that's segment one. Uh, moving right we along did it. to specs of the week. It was actually Starts a really watch. fast segment one, too. They're not normally not that us. quick. All right. So let's see. My first pick this week is predicated on a couple of things. A, there have been sliver cards that have been moving uh, in recent weeks that we have uh, assigned to people predicting that slivers will appear in Modern Horizons. That seems like a reasonably safe bet. It's a tribe that has a bunch of cards that are currently at a print that would reinforce a a deck in Modern that is currently tier 2.5 or something. It can 5-0 a Magic Online list in any given week, but doesn't generally show up in top eights. Give them a few hot new cards, like maybe a blue-green Hexproof Sliver for two. Um, and maybe that deck uh, becomes a relevant you know, aggro control tribe of some kind. So if you believe any of that, or you're just a big fan of the reserve list, Sliver Queen is already in relatively short supply. And you can get copies anywhere between 90 and 110, depending on where you're buying them. Slam dunk, I think, for this card to be 150 to 200 at some point. And the only question here is whether Horizons News pushes it over the top early, or you end up waiting 6 to 12 months, maybe 18, um, to get your returns. But if I call it at, say, 95 to get to 150 in a year, I'd feel pretty confident about that. Well, I definitely think... Um, I mean, you're definitely taking a bit of a gamble that slivers will show up in Modern Horizons. Uh, and if it doesn't, if it does, you're golden. If it does, you're golden here. Um, if it doesn't, yeah, you're still decent. Sliver Queen's reserve list card. It's still probably the best Sliver Lord. Even if they print slivers in Sliver in Horizons and they give you another Lord, it's still probably not as good as Sliver Queen. Um, so it stands well on that alone. And we've seen Sliver Queen creep up from like 20 or 30 bucks a couple years ago. So it's, it's been moving. Uh, it's basically a question th- th- this goes to, you know, that little piece of trivia or not trivia, a uh, little saying we all like, is there no bad specs, just longer term ones. Um, so you're either going to get really paid real short order, or you're going to have to wait a little while longer, but either way, you're probably in good shape. The real, the only hard part is, is the opportunity cost too high, uh, at 95 bucks a card when, um, if it doesn't show up in Horizons. So Jason, let me ask you this question. If 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 we believe that slivers are in Horizons, do you think they give a sliver overlord, which is currently the top sliver commander on EDH rec, which is not currently modern legal because it's from Scourge, but could be brought into modern? Um, or do you think they would just give us a new five-color sliver lord? My inclination is to say they would give us a, a new lord. I'm glad you hear you say that because I said the same thing. That's that's what I think they would do. I, I I really don't know how much reprint equity they're trying to put in the set versus how many new cards. Yeah, I um, I think I agree with that. I mean, I think I'm probably sixty forty on it. Like Overlord is a easy reprint here, um, but if you if they were going to put that tribe in, I feel like they might want to anchor it with something really splashy. 
and a, a brand new commander sliver seems like a nice inclusion in the set. Yeah, I my, my I think my thought was um, they don't get to go to the swell very often, so when they do, they want to make sure they utilize the opportunity. Yeah, and I think it's important to underscore that though Horizons is absolutely a modern focused set, there will be a pile of good EDH cards here because if it's powerful enough to make it in modern. <laughs> It's likely to have a lot more tools to play with and a lot more synergies to leverage over in Commander where you've got thousands of cards more to work with. Yeah. Um, all right, I will go with my first card here this week. Uh, something on the simpler side of things. Um, let's see, which one should I do first? I'll do this one because it's the first one on the list that I wrote down. Uh, Deadbridge Chant out of Dragon's Maze. This is that mythic that everyone complained about opening back uh, when they were opening Dragon's Maze packs and they weren't getting voice resurgence. It's a six mana enchantment. It's green black. When it enters the battlefield, mill yourself 10 cards. And then at the beginning of your upkeep, choose a card at random from your graveyard. And uh, if it's a creature, put it in the play. Otherwise, put it in your hand. So every turn, it either reanimates a random creature out of your graveyard or uh, returns a card from your graveyard to your hand. So... Depending on your deck, you might be fine with either of those. You might be attempting to sculpt your graveyard so that it can only hit specific creatures. You've got a couple different routes you can go with it. At the moment, it is in about 5.5 thousand decks uh, on EDA track. Uh, 5,500, so a pretty reasonable number. Um, it's also in one of the a color pair that really likes this type of thing, green-black. So you're going to see it in Muldratha uh, and Marin. Uh, notably so you could see in both of those and a lot of green black decks moving you know any green black you deck you build this is probably a, a semi-consideration um since so do that, you see carador jared yeah which right 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 for sure carador definitely um yeah it looks like he's one of the top commanders too so supply is 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 lowish lowish to medium it looks like there are 15 vendors with uh, near mint foil copies right now in tcg player um i see like two people with a, a playset. Other than that, mostly singles, and a couple of them are already fifteen bucks. So at six to seven dollars, uh, looks like you are set to just kind of ride this guy up to you know thirteen, fifteen, sixteen bucks. What do you think, Did Jason? You? I don't like EDH foils, <laughs> so I'm not super impressed. The one thing I will say, I don't think the fifty five hundred decks tells anybody inf- any information. I think the fact that is the fourth highest played multicolored enchantment is more telling it's between Saltai ascendancy and Karametra. so it's getting privileged posi- position numbers if, if that tells you more information um you can find all this information go to edh rec and just go by click on cards then click on multicolored and um yeah if you look at just enchantments uh you know the number one played enchantment is steal the godhead and that's heavily slanted toward um you know you're like uh zur and bruna decks and maybe Narset, I guess. Um, but so, Deadbridge Chant, it's it hasn't been getting played in anything recently. That's the thing. Like, where's the new demand going to come from when it hasn't been put in a new deck since Ishkana Graf Widow? Like, are, well, are, are people going to build Marin of Clan Neltoth or, you know, Carador decks now? Um, I would I would like to see something come along that that it gets put in. And that's certainly a possibility. So if if they so, print something that's uh, you know akin to Marin or maybe Tassiger or something like that in a new set, then that's probably when it pops. Uh, but I, I'm 
I'm thinking anybody that's going to try to foil out their uh, Moldrotha deck probably did it already. So I, I don't know what's going to push this, but certainly it has decent underlying metrics currently. So, Travis, I got another question for you. Did you bother to check on with your TCG, play, TCG player vendor status how many of these sold lately? It doesn't tell you that. It tells you the the best you get is what the last sold copy is. Is all you get. Gotcha. Um, I wish it told you that. Oh God, I wish TCG Player gave you that much data, but they don't. Um, to, so I had Jason raised a couple of things that I. Uh, so it is it it is in Moldrotha, which it, you know it's it's not. It's not Deadbridge Chan's most favorite commander, but definitely shows up in Moldrotha, which is one of the most built decks every week, which is part of what I was thinking. Um, now, I laughed, well, laughed when you said you don't like the EDH foils. Is that just because you think it's too easy or because you don't actually think that there will be a price increase? I have a harder time getting rid of them. I just don't like dealing with them. And uh, I do think it's a little easy. Um because I, I think telling somebody uh, to buy something that has a real low stock isn't really, you, you basically just noticed a thing, I yeah. guess, right? Like I just, I don't, I, there are plenty of people that are, that are giving people that spec information. So I tend to try to focus on, on stuff that, uh, that I think a certain percentage of the, the people who want the advice are picking up to play with, which is why I tend to go for the, the non-foil stuff that I think is not going to pop this week and then just like decrease by 50%. I don't like cards that are going to whipsaw, so um, I'm not saying this is that. I'm just saying that I, I tend to shy away from uh, EDH foils just on principle. So it's and, probably uh, probably worth exploring where you sell, Jason. Is most of your sales online, locally? What's the story? I, I used to do a lot more buy listing than I do now. I'm I'm ramping back up on TCG Player just because, uh, you know, the uh, I have a, a a case at an LGS, but like it's it's really random the stuff that'll sell there. And uh, there's finally another credible store in town uh, that I have some competition I didn't used to have. Um, so I'm I'm mostly looking at selling on TCG Player at this point, but I wasn't doing that for a while. Gotcha. Because, yeah, I, I certainly think that it how well your EDH foils do totally depends where you're selling. Mm -hmm. um, I do most of my, like, I, I'm an eBay power seller now and sell a lot of product there and through social media and then through the little website I set up um, and in the Discord and whatever. And honestly, I have no trouble whatsoever moving EDH foils if it's something that is relevant and of high demand. So, I mean, in terms of how often does this card actually sell, looking over, like, results on eBay... Deadbridge Chant foils look like they sell like one or two Z every couple weeks. So to me, that signals like, sure, you could pick up a, a, a small handful, sit on them for six to 12 months and expect to exit reasonably well. Um, but probably don't want to be 20 copies deep on this one. No, and I should stress that, you know, I didn't give a specific number, but I would not encourage people to buy eight playsets of this. It would be like, you know. Probably, given what inventory is available now, you're probably not really going to be inclined to buy more than four or five anyways, just because you're not going to find that many together. And once you buy the first five or six on TCG Player, you're already up to $10 a copy anyways. On the plus side, I'm willing to bet you can get these in Europe and other places overseas, because um, I can't imagine where the demand would be. And this is a mythic, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's yeah. not it's not a mythic from a terrible set. Yeah. So it's not it's not easy for the bulk lords to like fill in the gap once it sells out. Because there just won't be that many of, it, there really isn't that many of any given foil mythic, and especially a few years, like five years out from a set's release, um, the attrition factor is very real. 
So, I mean, the, the reason that this is, you know, nearly sold out isn't because it's ultra popular. It's because it's reasonably popular and sells some copies here and there. And there's just no resupply. Yep. Which all, I mean, all, all works. But all right. Now that you guys are done tearing my picks apart. <laughs> uh, well, what was the, what was the te- target exit? What do you think they're going to get out on? on like 15, guy? a double up to 15, seven to 15. In like, in like a year? I don't need, uh, I mean, it's funny. So six months ago, I would have told you it will take a year, but that was before we launched the discord. And now I know that there's a bit more, a bit more activity on our picks, especially when they get chatted chatting. So I think if you were to buy copies today, realistically, you could expect to sell them for 15 within 2019. And sometimes that stuff surprises you and it goes even faster than that. So you're saying now that you know that your picks are a self-fulfilling prophecy, you have more confidence in them? Like, essentially, yes. But but I mean, it's not like I'm, it's not like that's intentional. It's just what I have observed happening. I don't go in the Discord well, and tell people to all run out and buy it. I produce the exact same content that I did t- three years ago that I do today. It's just now that they all, everyone talks to each other. It seems like they all kind of convince each other to do it. And for sure, the most part, but, it seems like it works. Okay, but here's the here's the thing that we tell people all the time in Discord whatever you do don't chase by buy walls because often what you will see happen is say there's 10 copies of something our discord or somebody else's group tears that down somebody mentions a card they buy 10 copies boom they're gone now you didn't buy it out you cleaned it up but still it's gone now what's going to happen well if channel fireball throws 50 copies back up don't get defensive and go after those you need to take the market signal for what it is if they are signaling that the supply is significantly deeper than you thought it was you need to just stop <laughs> that's what you do you don't try to create demand you want to ride the trend of demand so you don't want to try to convince the world that deadbridge chant is the card you want the world to be steadily buying deadbridge chant foils and you just happen to have a few anything else and you're just introducing yourself to your own greater fool mm. all right so my next pick take a shot Wait, of this one is jason not giving us any uh, Jason, do you have any picks handy? If you'd like my picks of the week, you can listen to the Brainstorm Brewery podcast or go to mtgprice.com where I write a weekly article about EDH uh, Perfect. What is- and I have a really spicy one brewing right now. What I will say is I'll repeat one from Brainstorm Brewery in case you don't listen because uh, I don't think our listenerships overlap that much. I think um, Tulsimir is a little bit more popular than anybody anticipated. It's down to the fourth most popular uh, uh, War of the Spark commander. Um, Feather is number one with a bullet. Niv-Mizzet is number two, obviously, because it's uh, very exciting. And Kefnet just unseated Tulsimir as number three. Kefnet climbed up from number six, past Ilharg and uh, oh, one other one. Um, so, uh, you know, Kefnet's really nuts. I'm running about that this week. But Tulsimir surprised a lot of people because do I really want to build a dirtily tribal wolf deck? But people are using... Um, his fight ability to kill people's lands with living plane, which is like 200 bucks, but also nature's <laughs> revolt, which has been printed three or four times. Um, the, the fighting means that like uh, your creatures coming into play might die unless you run two cards. One is the, uh, the wanderer, the new planeswalker. And the other one is uh, Mark of asylum. So non-combat damage can't kill your creatures. I really like that in a world where people are running stuff like, uh, uh, blasphemous act but also if your wolves are fighting their creatures and only theirs can die uh that's cheating and that's how you win games of magic so uh mark is like two bucks ish i think that's a six seven dollar card um especially since it's like a, a second spike so uh, i'm i have a 
a pretty decent degree of confidence in that one. So uh, the, the foils aren't much more than the non-foils. So if you're into that, there's, you know, there's two opportunities, I'd say. Uh, I really have a lot of confidence in Mark of Asylum on the basis that Tulsimir is getting built a lot more than people thought. That's, that's shocking to me only because who would want to build Tulsimir? That deck just does not seem compelling to me. Well, uh, I, well, I like the, I, I like think the people are talking about building like a Gaddic Teague deck where you blow up their lands mm. with Nature's Revolt, which I think is hilarious. It's amusing. What was that, uh, Jason or James? I mean, I like the combos. Those are those are not interactions that I was aware of, so it wasn't even really on my radar. And when I'm looking at the the math, I just you know I'm not going to get excited until a, something is at least half what Feather's doing. And I'm sure Jason would agree that if Feather cards had not already popped, he would much rather point people towards Feather cards. But since most of them have already gone, let's see who else might put together a thousand or two thousand, you know, worth of representation on EDH rack representing ten or twenty thousand people playing the deck. He chooses. I think that's fine, but I think point. like uh, Feather is always going to like in terms of absolute numbers outpace all those other decks but the fact is that anybody that wants to build the Tulsimir deck is going to end up needing a mark and there aren't enough to satisfy even a couple hundred new decks being built cards been out of play out of print for ages yeah yeah all right so on to my next pick um this is a europe play specifically scalding tarn uh from zendikar uh original pack foils are pushing three four Maybe 450 in North America. Who knows what the number is because nobody has any in stock. Um, expeditions are sitting around 300, 350, so it probably is going to be like more or less neck and neck. So let's say that it settles in the 300 to 350 zone. Um, in Europe, you can still pick up copies 160, 180. You can get play sets for like 165 a piece. Um, this is on Magic Card Market. These are huge because the buy list backing on this is already 300 plus. I mean, I suppose that that is probably a, a great shot if you're uh, if you're in the market to do that type of thing. I mean, the interesting thing here is that the some of the vendors in question, you don't even need to get your relationship set up in Europe to leverage this. Some of these vendors will just ship to North America anyway because they're big enough vendors. Um, and usually, one a little tip for using Card Market is if somebody, uh, if you don't have your relationship set up, you can still set up an account, put a dummy address in for the time being, and then contact the vendor directly and say hey i'm looking to buy this playset if you cough up a thousand dollars us nobody's going to tell you to go f yourself right they're going to figure that deal out and i think time is short because it's not like scalding tarn is significantly less popular in europe it's just that the card market tends to be behind the beat and there's a lot of listings on card market that just tend to get left lying around and don't get updated over time because it's a they don't have an easy way to facilitate that. They don't have the tools in place. And so you can, you know, there might only be 20, 30, 40 copies that could be targeted. But if you're on the ground in Europe, and we definitely have listeners that are in uh, in Asia and Europe, um, and you can go to your local shop and they've got a, a one, two, three, a play set sitting around of Foil Scotland Turn, this is your shot. I mean, Scotland Turn is always going to be in demand, whether it's from Commander or EDH or Legacy. I'm sorry, Commander or Modern or Legacy um, and Vintage. And the original pack foils are just never going to get challenged. Yeah, hard. To, I mean, hard to argue with any of that. Uh, that it's you know it's a ripe opportunity, should you have the funds and the means to chase it. Um, I know that there's been a lot of disconcernment on uh, social media, especially with uh, certain personalities 
um, about the lack of a Zendikar Fetchland reprint uh, lately um, with Horizons coming out, you know, pushing a lot more people to the format, making them real excited, but not having an outlet for them here. Um, they're kind of scared away or they're, they're frustrated that like a bunch more people are going to play modern or there's going to be more incentive to play modern. And now uh, there's no like no affordable copies of these cards. So one of the whispers going around is that there might be modern event decks. Wizards has made a couple of comments lately about that they were going to address fetch lands, and I wonder whether that might end up being the thing. Now, the common wisdom is that can't happen because those decks would have to be a lot of money, but I would ask you to review the number of premium products they've released over $200 in the last six months and reconsider. I think there is entirely too much of a chance that they will say, okay, here's a $199, $299, $399 product, and this gets you like entry-level modern Phoenix or something. And maybe it comes with one scalding turn. And then you build up from there. <laughs> and if they don't do that, and that's all nonsense, then they still have to find some other ancillary product to stuff them into. And, you know, give it a, say, 75-25 chance that that comes with foils. So if for some reason they end up as a non-foil reprint and some kind of ancillary deck product or something, then the foils will be under additional pressure. This is a $75 event deck with one fetch land and 59 commons. <laughs> no, I think it's 199. Like I think they're going to go premium. I, I know. But, I know. I know. I'm just laughing at the thought of them doing something like that. Very transparent. Well, it's weird. Cause like two, two years ago, I would have said that's impossible. And everybody else would have said so too. And if I posted that on Twitter tonight, people would yell at me for six hours. But again, <laughs> the strategy on premium products is shifting at wizards and we're going to see plenty of them. So it's not that impossible. Henry, any thoughts before we move on here, Jason? No, I have no thoughts. Got okay. It. About uh, this or anything else. Fair, fair. I respect it. Uh, my next card for the week is Phyrexian Arena. Um, also foils, this time out of Conspiracy. Uh, so Phyrexian Arena is the second most popular enchantment, monocolor enchantment in EDH, uh, behind only Rhystic Study, I think. Um, it's in 50,000 lists. Uh, most times you build a deck with black mana, you're probably reaching for a Phyrexian Arena. This has three other foils. It has uh, eighth, ninth, and uh, shoot. There's a third one. I forget which one it is. But conspiracy. there's conspiracy. No, conspiracy is the one I wrote about. Uh, mm-hmm. There's another one, eighth, ninth, and something else. I think whatever. In any case, there's like three or four foil printings of this, but Pop all of the. Right? Apocalypse, that's what it is. Thank you. Apocalypse, 8th, 9th, and now Conspiracy. Uh, <clears throat> all the other foil printings, 8th and 9th are like 45 and 50 bucks. Uh, Apocalypse is like over 100, whereas your Conspiracy copy is like $26, $27. So I think you're going to see this run up to 45 or 50. Um, supply is not that deep. It's, again, like I said, extraordinarily popular. Uh, so, I mean, just it's just a matter of time before these are gone. Um, I think Phyrexian Arena feels a little like Soul Ring. Every time it gets reprinted, the price drops, and then it just keeps climbing again until they reprint it again. There's some cards that can just really shake off reprints forever. Eternal Witness is another one. It's just... mm-hmm. Yeah, this I can get with. This is a nice, steep curve. Inventory super low. You're certainly not trying to create a trend here. The trend is well-established, and it's never going to change. Um, this is this is a hot spec. Get in on these near twenty five with a discount coupon somewhere and ride them to forty, and you're good. Hmm. All right, what are you finishing us off with here, James? Um, 
Teferi Time Raveler. Last week we talked about Karn the Great Creator, and that deck is, I mean, that card is everywhere. I've seen it in nine different shells in three different formats this week. And I called it to the target in at seven last week, and I'm second-guessing whether you're not just supposed to buy them all the ones you can get at ten. Um, it could end, we are going to get serious supply pressure in the next six weeks on War of the Spark, for sure. And one of the reasons the EV is so high right now is because it's basically sold out. And that will reverse course at some point during the summer. But on the other hand, we have Modern Horizons coming up in very short order, which may steal a lot of wallet action, which could mean that War of the Spark doesn't actually sell that well midsummer, which is already the doldrums. And a set with tons and tons of staples that leads into another uber powerful set and then gets hit with summertime blues seems like a recipe for a bunch of real expensive cards down the road. So I'm also looking at Teferi Time Raveler, which is another rare that shows has showed up in multiple lists, has 5-0'd a bunch of leagues and completely different uh, versions of Blue-White Control, uh, uh, Bant Planeswalkers. It showed up in a Legacy... There was a Legacy deck, I think, that ran uh, four of this and only one Teferi Hero of Dominaria or something. Ra- Time Raveler is all over the place. Um, it's got some degree of EDH demand long-term uh, because of it forcing opponents to play at sorcery speed. Um, there's a bunch of combos that can work with it, including Knowledge Pool. Um, it works with the new Lavinia that came out this year. So again, I think I'm saying the same kind of thing. You're looking to get in on these at 6 or $7 with a sweet coupon or something. You don't necessarily need to take the jump at 10 because it is a rare, not a mythic. And I think that is confusing people in terms of us having Planeswalkers at a bunch of rarities all of a sudden. But... I think worst case scenario, even at 10 bucks, you probably end up holding these for a year or two and then they're double. I, this might be my favorite pick this week. I think Phyrexian Arena is like a lock, but this one is still really appealing uh, just because how fast you could move on it. Um, the supply on it is insane, right? There's like one guy on TCG player with like 75 copies at 1080 or something, but he's not going to sell all 75 copies at 1080 either. I can tell you that much uh he's gonna increase the price as as they sell um, especially if they sell fever feverishly um if this teferi really does seem to be doing well uh in standard and modern and even maybe a little bit of legacy uh and is also seems pretty nifty in edh sometimes um so this seems like this is the type of card you could try and get on in on now pick up you know, 12, 16, 20 copies at roughly 10 to $11 a piece, and then try and jump out at 18 or 19 in like two weeks, right? Uh, so not a humongous gain, but you know it's a stand, you know it's a standard card, so the vo- the liquidity is going to be very high, um, and your turnaround time could be extraordinarily short relative to some of the other stuff we talk about. And I think that like rares should not be this expensive. This this card normally should get down to five dollars or be ignored. But this card is a lot more powerful than people have at first given it credit for. Many of the planeswalkers of in this set have been underestimated. Ashiok is another one. Um, Sahili is probably being underestimated overall. And I looked at the alt art versions of these when I put through a big order with Harayuya the other day when they were twenty two hundred Japanese, which is basically nineteen US, and didn't pull the trigger on eight, and now they're up to twenty seven hundred. So the altars are definitely a special case, but there's also the data point that Paul, Paul Fuedo, who's one of the most experienced and respected buyers in North America for magic, um, from you know working on GP floors, when I posted on Twitter asking people what they thought the mythic that was going to be the most expensive come the first week of June was, he said it wasn't a myth- mythic, it was going to be this Teferi. 
Um, and he was setting up to chomp up a bunch of copies of North America and ship them to Japan because even the English versions are going for 20 bucks in Japan already. So there's a huge disparity there. It's, there should not be a double up between two continents in the first month of release. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it does seem like people might have missed it. Um, so I, 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 I would encourage our listeners of any card on here that might be the most tempting one to consider. Um, all right, anything, any other thoughts here, Jason, before we move on to segment three? No. <laughs> I got to tell you, the two of you being Jason and James is causing me to have to stop and intentionally think of a name before I speak. <laughs> And it's annoying. so hard when two words start with the same letter. You, you have. There's a lot more. It's, it's more just that first two, right? And like it's roughly the same length, five letters. It's tough, man. It's tough. You're, you're right. in awe of both of our MTG finance prowess. And, and you didn't yeah. come. You didn't come to Vegas. So you didn't. You definitely didn't. You don't know for a fact we're not the same person. Listen. Uh, well, yes, that's true. I've been to two of the three Vegases. I feel like that was no three of the four Vegases. That was a good number. Jason's pretty good with voices. He could have been me the whole time. Are we going? Are I, you have guys? To, I have to skip Vegas this year. So if you go this year, you won't be able to verify that James isn't me. <laughs> wow. You guys are just convenient. making this up on me. That's so convenient. All right. Segment three, our metagame we can review. The Star City Open in Richmond this weekend was uh, standard with, uh, let's see, top three, mono red, mono red, mono red. Uh, we also got a little bit yeah. of Ascrican. I'm sorry? In the first week of standard? Mono red? No way. Yeah, right. Uh, I, well, actually, it's more of an October thing, right? Like, it's it's the fall standard where you see uh, mono red crush. I think it's less, a little less common with, especially with uh, spring sets, because you have a very established format already. Um, but in any case, a lot of red. Some Esper Control, some Selesnia Tokens with three Tristani Discordant, which is curious, and uh, four March of the Multitudes which was a pick from before uh, a bat mid range list with three of catcher, which I remember saying I was a big fan of uh, bat mid range, actually six and eight. looks like those are probably the same list Four hydroid crisis, three of catchers and three of those to we were just talking about the time raveler um, and another Esper control in seventh place. So other than triple mono red, taking the top three, a reasonable looking standard format there. You know what jumps out at me here? None of these notable cards rotate. Chandra is from this year. Narset's from is brand new. Teferi rotates in the fall, but Tristani, Discordant, Gideon, and March of the Multitudes don't. Hydroid Crassus doesn't. Oketra doesn't. Teferi Time Raveler. Like, at rotation, I'm not sure how much of a format shift we're going to see. I mean, obviously it depends on the mechanics we get in the fall set and what happens with Core, but there's a lot of a lot of potential for these cards to see significant gains come the fall when they haven't been open for a while that does leave open a big door uh for opportunities you know if you get into like early-ish mid-august to go after some of this stuff um and see what you can pick up when you know everything's kind of it's an idea and people aren't paying as much attention and you snag up some teferis or hydroid crisis or akatras or whatever and then they double in october yeah i mean this it looks like a healthy standard Standard's been healthy for a while. Um, tons of cards from War have made their way in, but a lot of the deck archetypes are still in play. There's still a mono white list. There's still Asper Control. There are still various versions of Bant and Sultai running around. 
see a lot of like debate even amongst in the top eight as to what the optimal builds are like Sean yes Shonda Fire Artisan um, did very well and won the tournament but the next two mono reds didn't run Chandra they were running uh, the card that uh, the four mana enchantment um, as their card draw for the late game and a lot of it was uh, coming out of the sideboard like Collins Mullen who finished second had experimental frenzy four in the sideboard but didn't have any big card draw other than his uh light up the stage is in the main deck yeah i i it seems like i i like i like what what the options are here um and it'll be curious it'll be worth paying attention to standard again uh over the next probably the next two months or so especially once you after we get whatever the summer set is to see um if this type of stuff is holding true any uh, thoughts on standard jason like paying attention to standard I think the buy windows and sell windows are a little bit too short. I think it's a little tough to read the the tea leaves as well as a pro. And I've gotten really conflicting advice from pros. So I've my, my hit rate uh, has gone up since I started ignoring everything but EDH. And I realize that makes <laughs> if, if you don't care about EDH, it, it makes my advice kind of like lame. But if you're, but you're looking wrong. to pick up stuff to play with, that's great. And if you just want to make really easy, obvious money, uh, just ignore standard. Uh, we, if you're a standard player, certainly there's there's stuff you'll probably want to buy. And, you know, I think there are enough people out there giving advice that you don't want to listen to me about that anyway. So I don't care about standard. <laughs> yeah, uh, and it's fair enough. And I, 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 usually I, don't, don't. I don't have to. I've, I've become specialized enough that, like, you know, and, and honestly, me being 65% right about standard picks when I'm on top of my game isn't great anyway. So I'm not worried about it. Yeah, and honestly, we're all completely on the same page. We tell pro traders all the time, EDH is where it's at first and foremost, then modern, then distant third standard. Yeah, I mean, if you want easy money, just buy EDH foils. (laughs) True. Right, Jason? It's the easiest and the most intellectually lazy. That's fine. That's fine. I will be very intellectually lazy if it means making money. Yeah, I'm not not going to sweat too much buying a ton of smothering tithe foils at $10. (laughs) <laughs> the um i like what i buy is different from what i tell people to buy i don't give people obvious advice i guess so like what i'm when i'm writing articles i'm not gonna tell people obvious stuff but oh my god do i buy that obvious stuff you know so <laughs> see the tricky part is that the new mistake the most common new mistake i see all the time in mgg finance is people wanting to be original and be creative and to use MDG Finance as a creative outlet when making money is not where you want to be creative. Save your creativity for your deck building. Go make something wacky in EDH that has no chance of winning, but that's going to be hilarious. But you don't need to be creative with your specs. You just need to buy the best available option and not try to find the thing nobody else is even looking at. I, I respect the looking at something like oh well yeah this foil dumb dz like you just notice it was low stock like it's it's low effort uh i mean i respect that that's that's accurate uh it really does require a considerable more amount of effort to be much more i'm gonna say clever with what you're chasing uh or should i say with what you're targeting because i you know i've spent time doing that in the past uh and it it feels really good when you feel like you've really like discovered something. Um, and especially when you get paid off on it, there's a real sense of satisfaction. I guess it's just sort of like, 
I could spend an hour and a half looking for that type of stuff and feel like I really pulled it off and I was very clever. Or I could just look at what's really popular on EDH this week and what supply numbers have gotten really low and just go, yep, there's the next one. Uh, I don't have to work as hard, but I don't really care because they both pay, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. No one reads my articles for me to tell them what everyone else is telling them, you know. But that's not why my articles are behind a paywall for uh, our pro traders only for 48 hours at mtgprice.com. <laughs> well, and I agree that people people are expecting a lot more uh, insight from your work than they are James and I, uh, especially given how you've positioned yourself as, um, you know, sort of a, a wealth of knowledge about a specific format. They're looking for a lot more in-depth analysis that they can try and learn from and then apply elsewhere after the fact. I think it's lower stress following that advice because if you are ahead and you can be in a position to sell at your own rate, you know, you're not having to worry about a price whipsawing. I think if you just position yourself to be like, wow, I bought those, um, you know, those uh, copies of squandered resource at 25 cents and now they're $25. That was helpful. Uh, I just got to buy them real slowly. I didn't, you know, buy something that was low stock and about to sell out and trigger other people to run out. No one noticed when I was buying them slowly for, you know, 50 cents a buck. And then all of a sudden, people noticed and I had the copies. I didn't have to run out and try to buy them, get my orders canceled. That's why I stopped standard. You guys remember Theros Block was like the first time when when Theros came out, that was the last time I could like write my Monday morning like, hey, this happened over the weekend on Saturday. Buy these cards on Mon- or Tuesday when you read my article on Monday. You know, that was for sets. We, we did that on QS. And then all of a sudden... People notice stuff on Friday and on Saturday, people bought everything out and on Sunday, their orders got canceled. So like mm-hmm. one standard became more way more efficient. I moved into EDH just because it was way lower stress. You had time to just gather your stuff. The cards didn't sell out because people noticed that the stock was low. They they sold because they were going to sell and you just they people could buy them from you because you had them. You know, you didn't have to try to be like, well, I ordered these cards. I'll probably get them. So I'm going to sell them for more. Just, I used to do that kind of stressful stuff, and it's 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 so much less stress now. I know I'm going to sit on the stuff for six months sometimes, but eventually, you know, I have the data to back it up. It's all, you know, it's all me just looking at numbers and and not trying to guess what people are going to do. Because when I first started writing about EDH on MTG Price, I was absolutely being like, oh, there's a cleric guy, buy all the clerics, and then no one built that deck. Or what they did, it wasn't a cleric deck when they built it. So I started waiting and seeing what people were actually doing and not what they said online they were going to do. And it's just, it's so much less stress for me. Everything just happens the way it's always going to because it's based on data. Sometimes you second guess yourself because... Go ahead. We'll dig in on the logic of that data in a second here. Um, Just before we get to that, I want to go through a couple of the decks from the Competitive Modern Constructed League from today. There were some... Last week, we had several spicy brews that we wasted a ton of time talking about. This week, it's like there wasn't enough spice last week, so they just had to like amp it up to absolute maximum. Um, click through this list and find uh, find this deck that is running Niv-Mizzet Reborn as a 3-of in a 5-0 modern list. <laughs> this deck is insane. It's running two Domri Anarch of Bolas. One Kaya Orzhov Usurper, four Birds of Paradise, four Niv-Mizzet Reborn, one Sin Collector, four Bring Delight, as you do when you're going five color and modern, 
2 Inquisition of Kozilek, 1 Primal Command, 3 Safe Right Quest. I you don't even know what Safe Right Quest do you, listeners? Nope. nope. <laughs> I have no I didn't know what that card did at all. It is a one mana sorcery that is a hybrid white green out of Shadowmoor that searches your library for a forest or plains card, reveal it and put it into your hand, then shuffle your library. Continuing on, Supreme Verdict, Fought Erasure, Unmoored Ego, 3 Assassin's Trophy, a Counter Squall, 2 Is It Charm, 2 Coligan's Command, 4 Lightning Helix, and a Detention Sphere. I have never seen such a pile in all my years. Yeah, it is a pile, all right. Safe Right Quest is the only green-white card you can head off, Nev. That's dumb. There has to be something better than that. One Night of Autumn? Nothing? Night of Autumn's huh. probably supposed to be in there somewhere. I've never wanted likely. to talk to a deck builder so much. Because you just assume, like, okay, random 5-0 list. He went 1-4 in every other league. But did he? Like, I, <laughs> I want to see this, this deck get played and actually get challenged by real decks and see what happens. Because this, like, this is screaming for Saffron to put up a video. Uh, again, this is one of those 5-0s that you're like, <laughs> really want to know more about the, the path that brought you to this. Um, I just can't get over Niv Mizzet. How would you want? How would you even sideboard this deck? Uh, color pairing you get, like, for color pairing. and Campbell, and it's like, when do you bring some of this goofy stuff in? Well, he's got your knife, Knight of Autumn in the sideboard. So and Fracturing here. Gust. Ooh. <laughs> I think, um, we're, I just, Niv-Mizzet just doesn't seem that good. Like, you're, it's modern, right? And you're, so you're paying five mana for a 6-6 six, six flyer that draws you, even if you draw six cards with him, is that You just drew them. It? It's not like he'd auto-cast them. Right, yeah, yeah like okay, drew... a five on a six six it draws me six cards. I don't care. You're you're dead. Like how do you how do you win a game with that? And you, the stuff you're drawing is like does drawing a counter squall when you tap out on turn four, is that worth it? Nice, I drew my safe right quest. <laughs> there's there's also some weird ones that can't be that he can't draw into, right? Like there's a there there's definitely a concession to Primal Command. Yeah, Primal Command and Inquisition of Kozilek is like the the Inquisition is a definitely a concession to the fact that you have to get rid of a key card out of their hand if you have any chance of like getting your niv on the board somebody dared this guy to build a pillar of the parents deck and he did because i remember <laughs> years ago people were using pillar and like a deck with like lightning angel and crap like that like yeah. i definitely want pillar to be good i don't want pillar to be good because i think i already sold all of mine a couple months ago so no more you guys had your so, shot that's it so so there's also a blue-white deck in here that's got two Jace, two Teferi, Hero of Dominaria, and two Teferi, Time Raveler. So you're seeing Time Raveler push copies of Jace and Hero of Dominaria out of the well-established blue-white archetype. That's definitely got my attention. Uh, what was the key card in that one so I can find this on this page? Or who was it by? Uh, the deck list I'm talking about is God's yeah. underscore Shadow. I'm also running two Nimble Obstructionist for Snapcaster Mage, two Vandillion Click, two Oust for Serum Visions for Cryptic Command, two Logic Knot for Path to Exile, two Spell Snare, and two Search for Azkanta. Um, interesting to see Search for Azkanta doubled up, because usually I think it's a one of. Um, and Nimble Obstructionist being in the main, um, I'm assuming is being used to counter Dredge and Phoenix shenanigans. Yeah, this this to me looks like the guy doesn't know what he's trying to accomplish, or he doesn't know what's good yet. And because I remember reading a Chapin article years and years and years ago, and he's like, "You play four when you want to draw as many as you can in a game. 
You play three when you want to draw one a game. You play one when you want to search for it. And you play two when you don't know how many you're supposed to play. Uh, this is all two of us. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he's some cool stuff in here. There's the, the time raveler in there. The nimble obstructionist is a two of two. It's so odd. This, yeah. is, this is a five. Oh, I really would love Sensor. to know more about these. Yeah, exactly. I want to see these get played. The He's check- running old Kefnet, not new Kefnet. Yeah. Check check out the blue-white prison list. Like the blue, blue-white taxes. Uh, Therata Zoo. Um, search Blade Splicer if you're searching the page. Two Blade Splicer, two Deputy of Detention, three Flicker Wisp. Deputy of Detention was called out on BSB by your guest, right, Jason? Yeah, she really liked Deputy. Yeah. Three, Who was three that fl- that you guys had on? Deputy. Cat Light from Team Lotus Box. Uh, okay. No, but didn't Max also, Khan also say? Oh, Max Khan was the one that called it? Yeah, 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 yeah I think um, it was Max. Um, two, yeah, two blade- a, yeah. So yeah, 2 Spicer, 2 Deputy Attention, 3 Flicker Wisp, 3 Lavinia Azorius Renegade. I've got some uh, Russian promo foils that would love to see her set up shop in modern. Um, 4 Leonin Arbiter, 4 Meddling Mage, 2 Reflector Mage, a Remorseful Cleric, which also has made its way into the Black White Eldrazi list. Um, uh, something that you can either violin and then get rid of graveyards. Four Spell Queller, four Thalia, Guardian of Thraben, and four Thalia, Heretic Cathar, with four no, Path one, to Exile. One Heretic Cathar. Oh, sorry, yeah, one Thalia, Heretic Cathar. And then four Path and four Bile. So just the, the only real switch there is like out of red-white variants or white-black variants into blue to have access to Spell Queller and to Lavinia. Um, that's kind of cool. I, I actually think you're missing what might be the most interesting what 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 is one of the most interesting cards on this list or the most interesting list on this page is the very first one uh which has the three dabriels yeah rogue shadow mage yeah it's it's, this is just a a a small pox deck so it's got the three dabriels four veils um you've got the small pox in there some more discard uh two two liliana's triumph which is new two ensnaring bridges, some racks, uh, and shrieking affliction. So I would have to guess if you were to chase down anything in this list, it's probably shrieking affliction because I think this has been popular in the past. So you're, it's unlikely that there's a massive amount of inventory out there waiting to be pulled out of bulk. Like, cause people bought this and people like this card anyways. Yeah. This is already like 70 it's cents. Been a, it's been a pick for a while, so it's probably not in bulk, but it's probably in, disorganized better than bulk boxes at your lgs yeah and i bet this but i but i could see if people think that this is a real deck i bet this could go from you know 40 50 cents to like four bucks you know and you could this is a type of thing that you can buy you know if you can buy 20 or 30 of them at 75 cents a piece and then buy list them for three dollars that would be a pretty nice play um, and looking at the list, it seems like that would be your best bet, most likely. I don't know if well, I want to try to play Dobrails. how many times the rack has been printed, and, like, there are all... Despite having, like, $1 or $2 versions, there are a lot of versions of the rack over 5 6 bucks. Mm-hmm. And Tricking Affliction is just the one printing. It's just Return yeah. the Ravnica, which was a long time ago now. Six years, Yeah, right? we've been back to Ravnica 11 times since that set. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so check out the pen sword, the pen sword list. This is uh, three Chandra Torch of Defiance, four Karn the Great Creator, yet another list running four Karns, three Chalice of the Void, three Ensnaring Bridge, and a Liquid Metal Coating, four Blood Moon, four Goblin Rabble Master, two Legion War Boss, one Pia and Kira Nalar, four Simeon Spirit Guide, and two Anger of the Gods, 
for a braid for desperate ritual one pyretic ritual so they are just looking to go hard and either get a lockdown locked out chalice on the board real early or get a ridiculous threat on the board turn one or two and then liquid metal coating their stuff and turn it off with karn's static ability that's silly <laughs> it's like a, it's like a yeah. variable pithing needle yeah yeah this this deck is clever liquid liquid metal coating with karn is got to be one of is it dumb is that the word i'm looking for is this well, dumb four like it main just deck seems of like braids also but, like it's not but, it's but look at the sideboard they've got the full wish list for karn they're like pulling out the mycosynth lattice to lock down that way and they've got a whole bunch of other like silver bullets spell sky torpor orb slag storm uh, well, I guess he can't pull out Slagstorm, but Graft Digger's Cage, another Liquid Meta Coating, a Chalice of the Void. So I saw that in a vintage list the other day, too. The thing where the stuff that you definitely want, you don't put all four copies in the main, which frees up space. You put one of them in the wish board. So right. there's like, they're only running three Chalice, right? Well, if you're, uh, if you're playing a Karn deck, you have to be putting, you know, half your sideboard is going to be artifacts, just because other than that, there's no point. Yeah, this... Stand by my pick last week. Karn is looking like the top rare in the set so far. I wonder how often he got to liquid metal coating something and have it be meaningful. Jason, I wanted to run it by you, though, since we've got you. Um, Karn and EDH, because wishes aren't allowed, just turns people off completely? Or is, is the ability to bring stuff out of exile and stony silence people good enough? People are kind of doing it. It's in about as many decks as Ral and Nyssa, you know, so it's it's getting played more than Blast Zone. Um, but I, having that second ability not be able to do anything kind of sucks. Like, I don't know. Um, the, the static ability is, is pretty meaningful in EDH, but I don't think it's it's going to be as impactful an EDH card as it is in other formats. And I, I think that's perfectly fine. This seems like a like a, a real vintage impact card. Yeah, yeah. Modern Legacy and Vintage, I think, will all find homes. Um, all right, so let's let's move on. Since we're gonna blow through tons of time going through all these crazy modern lists, um, modern already explosively interesting coming out of War of the Spark, and we've got Modern Horizons <laughs> coming up, which will be the first set ever with two hundred plus new cards for Modern. It's going to be an interesting summer at F and M. Um, all right, so our topic of the week, uh, two topics actually. One real quick. Um, since everybody's already talked this to death, um, but we should at least mention it. How much of a clusterfuck was the Mythic Edition 3 launch? I don't understand why they went with eBay, and I don't understand why eBay wasn't able to handle it. Yeah, well, they went with eBay because it worked for Mythic Edition 2, and they underestimated just how much more popular this was going to be when they put Jason and Ugin in here. But... Your second question is extremely pertinent. Like, how, how did eBay not handle this? They have, people were telling me, oh, it's going to collapse. And I said, no, it's eBay. Like, they have ridiculous load balancing. They have server farms the size of football fields. They can handle 40,000 people buying a product. And they can handle 40,000 people hitting F5 all at once on the same thing. Because the site's designed for people to try to snipe. So I have a mm -hmm. feeling that you, when you're selling that much, you're supposed to flag specific teams inside eBay. And that somebody at Hasbro didn't do that. And so preparations were not made to make sure that the play was backed. And we ended up in the position that we were in. Um, because in that time frame where that all went down, there was plenty of other major releases on eBay that all went off without a hitch. So 
there was something specifically incorrect about the coordination here. Where we well, stand... Go ahead. The Hasbro store account, it was like a store account versus... So, like, there's something a little bit different there. Yeah, that that will be different technology that's probably hosted differently. Um, and and maybe... I, I mean, it's all, it's all conjecture at this point. But the bottom line is that a week later, where we're sitting is, a lot of people still don't know whether they're getting their Mythic Editions. Because people got letters. Some said you didn't get it. Some said you did get it. But a lot of the people that were told they did get it still haven't got shipping confirmations, even though it was supposed to start shipping on Monday. So, and there was tons of people. I mean, 40,000 plus orders were processed. It made news. It was covered on a whole bunch of esports and nerd sites. Um, and, you know, a ton of people clearly tried to put in multiple orders on the same account, which caused a lot of the problems. And then at one point, when Wizards had rolled back some of that, they put up another listing. And that listing didn't have a limit on it. So then people started ordering 10 at a time, which just <laughs> compounded the problem and forced them to roll back even more um, uh, orders. And then the other problem really early on, like in the first two minutes of ordering, was that they weren't calculating sales tax properly. And so those orders just ended up getting voided completely. Because oh, is that what happened? Because I had two peers who ordered right at the same time I did or very close. And they both ended up reporting different prices by like a dollar or something. And I'm like, I am like, I don't even know how that happened. Like that didn't, I didn't understand what would have occurred, but that's, that makes sense. Yeah. And so those people just got caught out completely because even once the orders had been rolled back, they were just kind of left out of the mix. They were just considered when they call eBay, the story they get is, well, you never bought this product. Like we didn't process your payment. Even though in situo, they saw the payment get processed and then afterwards saw it canceled. They've just been told, no, you never bought that product because they just chose to invalidate it because it wasn't in their in their eyes a legal transaction. So they didn't want to stand behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the whole thing has just been an utter and complete clusterfuck. We've seen copy sell for as much as $1,000 this week online. Um, Jace auctions this morning were closing north of 350 400 um, and I think copies sold like that on TCG Player as well. This is absolutely bonkers. I, my whole take on this, you know, I I had a total of um, five accounts, att- uh, a total of five accounts attempt to make the purchase across a couple people. Um, I got one through, supposedly. Um, I mean, I don't have anything in my hands yet, but uh, I'm assuming, uh, I'm predicting I'm going to get one in the mail. So I had a pretty bad hit rate. Um. And that's, by the way, if you're going to complain like, oh, at least you got one. Well, there's a reason I try and set up five accounts to purchase it because I know the hit rate is going to be low. Like, I don't expect to actually get all five orders through. And if you go in with one account, like you have to expect you're not going to get it. Um, I I guess I'm not that I was not that upset about this. uh, And it's what I expected. And I found this interesting. And if you follow me on Twitter, you caught a little bit of this already, but this type of event isn't limited to magic. This happens all over the place. Um, and a really good comparison is like the shoe industry and like sneaker heads. And those things have obscenely rare releases that are, they have way more than 12, way fewer than 12,000 pairs of sneakers. Um, and just, it's funny because just like a couple of days ago, one of my friends was just commenting about how he posted a picture of sneakers. He's like, I remember standing in line in Tokyo at the only store in Japan, the only store in the world where they sold these sho- shoes. I remember standing in line to pay $300 for them and decided to go home because I didn't want to stand in the rain for seven hours. And he's like, that was, I don't know, a couple of years ago. 
or it was, and now it was a couple of years, a while ago, but he's like, and now they're $1,500 a pair. Um, and that happens all the time. And it's like, you, it's not even like you get to, you have to risk, you have to, you have to hope to get lucky buying them online. They're literally only available in one or two physical locations. And if you don't live in that city too bad, you can't buy them. And they could be the coolest looking thing you've ever seen in your life. And you are just completely upside down, left to right screwed. There's no way for you to get them. Um, and even when they do put them online, it's the same type of thing. You, It's a mad dash to, and jamming your order through. So it feels, I, I appreciate why it feels really bad for people, but like this is just has become a part of collectible culture across the, the broad spectrum of various products. So I, I don't know if I had gotten zero, I, I feel like I wouldn't have felt any different. Like I understand what this is and that it's just a common thing and you can be frustrated with that and 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 that you don't like that that's how they do it but like this isn't a unique event and even if wizards did have a poor handling of it in this case um you know with like the fifty thousand copies or whatever being marked as sold and people not sure sure if their orders went through that part of it sucked uh the the idea that like hey we're only putting this up it's only going to be available for a couple minutes and you're either going to get lucky or you're not like that's standard fare that's I, i wasn't really upset about my orders getting canceled uh until i saw what the people that did get them were uh were gouging people for and uh <laughs> hey guess what if you uh if you did get a confirmation and you don't have the stuff in your hand maybe you probably shouldn't have listed it because i just got a tweet from someone who told me that he got the email that says oh we're congratulations we're pleased to uh you know confirm your order or whatever he got the the confirmation email and then uh five days later he got his canceled. Really? Yep. This is uh, month as of Tuesday night when we're recording this. Uh, he just got a, a cancellation email. Yeah, I'm no I'm going to go check my other Gmail accounts right now. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I I heard the same. Like that 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 is definitely true. Um, because I think that their accounting of all this is probably not. Uh, easy to manage in the software tools that they were expecting to use. <laughs> so I expect there to be a lot of problems along the way. Um, it's why people don't have their refunds. Cause one of the big problems was especially for international orders. Uh, yeah. eBay takes uh, customs fees and stuff up front and that probably gets sent off to some other accounting uh, basket in their, in their software or whatever. That's not easy to pull things back out of. And so once the, the whole clusterfuck unfolded, the, you know, people overseas that have gotten refunds that definitely are not getting any still haven't got a full refund. They only got a partial refund. And now they're going to have to spend hours they get a on refund the just for the retail cost of the product. But yeah, the fees associated. Exactly. So it's going to be in case anyone was thing. in case anyone was nervous. I have not gotten a whoopsie email on the only one that says that it went through. Yeah, and neither so. have I. So, you know, we're still in the game, but who knows where that's going to land. I'm not counting my chickens. However, I think there's, there's a bunch of weird things here, right? Because, uh, yeah, you probably shouldn't list those copies if you don't know 100% you're getting them. But eBay is probably going to forgive you if you do because they have to admit what happened. Like, they, No, I don't they, think it. No, no, no. I if they, if they, they said it, it is true because they sent eBay branded emails telling people they were getting the product. So if you then try to sell that product, you can point to the rep, eBay rep and say, look, you told me I was getting it. You put it in writing and you're, it's not even from Hasbro, it's from you. So, you know, it's not my fault. The other thing that's going down is people put up singles for pre-order for a lot of the Planeswalkers in the like 30, 40, 50 range that are already worth 60, 80, 100. 
And now they're strongly motivated to just cancel those orders and claim that they didn't get the product, even if they are getting the product, because now they can repost them at a higher price. So that's going to be a whole another clusterfuck of like 10 or 20 or 30,000 canceled orders. Feel bads people, all around. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's nothing but feel bads. I will tell you that I think you are trying, you're putting a losing battle if you think you're going to be able to, if you, if you list, if you got an email that said you your order was confirmed, and then you sold the product on eBay, and then you... What the, regardless of the timeline, if you then found out that you weren't getting it and then you cancel the order and eBay is going to be like, well, that was a dick thing to do. And you're going to be like, well, you told me I got it. And then you'll be like, we don't care. Don't sell things that aren't in your hands. Like there are mistakes. You can't bank on a simple emails like guaranteed proof. So I don't know. I, I just think that people I'm are going to be with eBay on that one. What'd you say? I'm kind of with eBay on that one. Definitely, yeah, I mean, definitely the I, wisest way to handle it regardless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just don't sell things that you don't have in your hands because you never know. Um, but uh, all right, any any more thoughts you guys have on this before we move on to the meat of our segment four and the whole reason Jason's here? Yeah, it's it's good enough. Let's let's get on Jason's thing. So we we brought Jason on this week because um, you know Jason is tightly tied to obviously EDH speculation in general, but also specifically to how to best utilize EDH Rec, EDHREC.com, one of the pillars of the EDH Commander community. Um, a lot of good data flows through there in terms of what cards are being used with which commanders. Well, um, a lot of data. A lot of data. So it's not necessarily all good data, but the the, the speculation is that. You know, the wisdom of the crowds will prevail. Gotcha. So let's just hand the floor over to Jason and let him walk us through what Jason's opinion is about the correct way to use EDH rec to explore statistics related to the format. Well, I I wish that I had written some more general articles about uh, about how to use EDH rec on MTG price and that that could be something I do in the future. Because for the most part, when I write articles about it, I pick a commander and I talk about what the EDH rec data tells us about what could go up in those decks. Um, and that method, I, can, I guess I could walk you how through how I would write an article. And this would be kind of the same way that uh, you would check out a new commander for uh, stuff that's going to move. Um, I... There are, I guess, a couple different ways to use the, the site. What happens is someone will submit a deck to a site like MTG Goldfish or Deck Stats or Architect. Uh, we're no longer affiliated with uh, with Tapped Out because they asked us not to use their data anymore, and we said that's fine. EDH Rec will be working on a way to build the infrastructure to have you be able to submit your deck directly. There's You click on the Rex tab and it looks like you're submitting your deck, but really what you're asking is, is this deck similar to something already in the database that was submitted somewhere else? So you can't currently su- submit directly to EDH Rec. So what we're doing is we're scraping the, those sites we mentioned and then compiling all the data. So it originally started out as a Reddit bot, which was like, hey, I'm building Jaleva Nefalia Scourge. And then the bot would be like, beep boop, 75% of people that built Jaleva are running, you know, uh, bribery or something like that, right? So um, if you're doing what I do, uh, when a set's new, I will go to the set tab up, uh, up the top and uh, just bring up the set and kind of look at what stuff is played in relation to each other. I think saying that uh, 50 people have built Ilharg the Raised Boar doesn't tell you a lot of information, but if you're like, okay, Ilharg is the fifth most built deck, 
50 people have built it. Ilharg, 51 have built Tulsimir. 42 have built Oketra versus 372 for Feather. It's running away. It's it's seven times as popular as the fifth most popular commander. So so knowing that kind of stuff, I think uh, the numbers help you look at what the numbers are in proportion to each other versus the, the raw numbers mattering that much. Now, if a card's in more than 10,000 decks, chances are you can say, all right, like, I guess the raw number tells you at least in terms of the, the overall site, it's like a tenth as popular as Soul Ring. So there you go. Soul Ring should be in, you know, 95% of EDH decks. So if it's 10% as popular, that's something that should be in every single deck, then, you know, it, it's pretty popular. But um, uh, I have a tendency to just uh, use the numbers as in relation to each other. Something similar, you know, versus... Uh, raw numbers and that's just something i've developed you know having done this method for the last four or five years sure Um, do you guys have any specific questions about how to use the site versus me just walking through exactly well i mean i i think that it's probably valuable to outline a couple things that people could do that would be missteps so for instance one of the ones that um, i typically warn people against is comparing the raw number as you refer to it, you know, the number of decks that is reported for that card to another card that is significantly older. You have to compare apples to apples. If a card is yeah. from five years ago and it's got a single printing and you're comparing it to a card that just came out, you know, seeing that, for instance, whatever, Ilhard the Razebor only has 50 decks doesn't mean it's going to be at 50 decks three years from now. It's going to get to hundreds or thousands. The question is how many hundreds or thousands relative to other decks in the same time frame which kind of to my mind represents the acceleration of the adoption does that make sense to you yeah absolutely um and then i like your point from earlier sorry go ahead no no you were going to tell me that i said something smart that you like so i I should let you say that (laughs) well i like i liked your point from earlier about um you know looking at cards in the same color pairing looking at cards in the same uh, card type that are, in theory, approximately the same age so that you can get additional context. You know, this this card is great, but, you know, even though it's reported in 2,000 decks, it might be the 48th most played kill spell. So I, I, how important is it actually? I've, you know, I've used that a couple times, um, but I usually don't necessarily include it in the writing or the verification. I use it in my own mental bookkeeping, but not, not as much publicly, but going to a specific set um, and going, okay, well, this card, it, it happens a lot uh, for me when I'm looking at stuff that's like between six months and like two or three years old, where I'll go, okay, well, this card is in like 2,400 decks, but it's kind of new. So how much does that matter? And then I'll go to that set and be like, okay, well, it turns out that this is only in 2,400 decks, but it's the second most popular card from this set. Um, and it's beating cards from the set prior to it and the set after it. So it's actually quite popular. These cards, we just don't have enough data from this set in the database to really inflate that number, but clearly it's popular. Or, you know, you see that a card is in 7,000 or 8,000 decks, and then you see that it's way down the list of popular cards from that set. I think that one matters a little bit less. 
uh, because it's been long enough that you have the attrition working for you. But I think sure. it's very useful when you're looking at the newer stuff to, to have use that frame of reference. Um, and, and I think about it sometimes, but I don't talk about it enough. And I'm definitely going to try and be better about that and using that as a frame of reference because I think that's a good data point. I, I just think when people just report the, the, the raw number, I think that is used more as padding. For their, I see it used on Reddit like as an ex post facto justification for something they already said was a good spec. They throw it in as like an afterthought. Like, yeah, and it's in 5693 decks on EDH rack. Well, what does that mean? Uh, I think it, the data can't be used to, to mislead people if it just – that sounds like a big number. Um, I also think that color matters. Um, you would expect Mirage Mirror to be in more decks than Ram and Ep Excavator if the cards are roughly equivalent in power level. Because Ramin' Up Excavator can't go in as many decks as Mirage Mirror. But Mirage Mirror is actually going in fewer decks overall than Ramin' Up Excavator. Despite, you know, not being color limited. So stuff like that matters too. If a card is underperforming you know, relative to something that is that is colored versus something non-colored, that's useful information too. You know, Mirage Mirror was predicted to be in a lot more decks than a colored card, and we're not really seeing that. So you uh, that that's that's why Mirage Mirror is like a little bit cheaper or it's it's more, but like it's also has fewer printings than Ram and Excavator, which was a, a foil that everybody got for going to game day or something. I don't know. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. There was a, a promo there that holds it back. I mean, what I, I will I will say, but that it's I, half a torment of hellfire, for example. Yeah, I will say that there are a couple of heuristics I have found to be very productive, um, despite them being loosely based on the raw numbers. One of them is decks that within three months of release, I mean, cards that within three months of release show up as a thousand plus decks on this site tend to be solid specs. They just tend to get there over time. Rarity, sure. depend, rarity dependent and number of, you know, ramming up excavator is a good example because, yeah, that card's going to get played a lot, but if it gets a promo printing, that that has to be taken into consideration. But so, for instance, if we're looking back at Ravnica Allegiance, you know, the magic number in a longer term, like if I'm looking a year out, I'm looking for 5,000 plus decks. Once I see a card above 5,000, I don't really care where your data came from. I just, it's a very good chance that those foils are going to tip um, within a couple of years, depending on the card. Something like Smothering Tithe, you know, is is kind of snapping heads around because that's a card where not just the foil, but the non-foil went through that's the roof. four with... times as many decks as the second most played card. Yeah, it's it's almost at the magic 5,000 in three months. Wait, what was and it? Which card I missed? Smothering, Smothering Tithe. Tithe. And, and obviously it's because it's a mega staple for Commander. Like, it filled a gap in white decks that people outside the format... Don't... It's a white wristic study. Right. And people outside the format didn't understand, don't understand why that's so important for the white decks in Commander, um, because they don't play. But it's interesting to see um, a non-foil Commander-specific card take off while it's still in print. Literally, it was within six weeks of release. That yeah. suggests that we we really are at a point now where Commander isn't just relevant to MTG Finance, it is leading MTG Finance. Well, we saw the same thing with Anointed Procession, and I think people made the mistake of thinking the small modicum of very limited one-time standard applicability was what drove Anointed Procession up as high and as fast as it did. And I thought that wasn't correct. But people fought me on that at the time, and uh, I think that was a very good predictor of what happened with Smothering Tithe. 
Yeah, and and truly, if we look at Ravnica Allegiance, the foil, all of the cards in the first row of most popular from that set on EDH Rec are all of those foils are worth money, and a lot of them are not are not mythics, and a lot of them are not rares. So we have Smothering Tide at almost five thousand decks, then we've got Rhythm of the Wild, which has been played in standard a little bit, but though that's an uncommon. So is Wilderness Reclamation, which is obviously a, a staple in standard right now. But both of those foils are over seven dollars for uncommon. So is Vindictive Vampire. Yeah. Yeah, and Guardian Project foils are already in the like seven to ten dollar range. I think last time I checked, Priest of Forgotten Gods is worth money. I mean, the first two rows to me, if I'm looking at a set, are always worth considering and worth researching further. So nobody, I fully agree that nobody should be using the like number of decks reported as the sole data point, but it can often be the you know big signpost that leads you to a good decision. That's why I like ranking them. I like going into hey cards in a set. What is it versus the other cards in the set? You can see if something is getting played three or four times as much as the uh, the next played card, where Smothering Tide has played three times as much as Rhythm of the Wild, and Taysa Karloff has built three times as much as Nikia, which is the number two deck, right. which is not what would have been predicted. All anybody was talking about was Prime Speaker Vanifar, you know, when the deck first came out, and that's yeah. built a third as much as Taysa. So having that data... Uh, which can surprise you. I was surprised by Tolsmere getting built more than Kefnet and Elharg and uh, Oketra. So stuff like that, you know, um, that's why I wait for the data. Um, I, I don't I, I don't look at commanders prices per se. I tend to look at the the new commanders and look at what older cards yeah. are in those decks. Yeah. Because what you want to find is a mythic that's been overlooked. It's sitting around at $2 somewhere that nobody else is using, but will be an absolute requirement in the in the, the hallowed spirit keeper that goes from fifty cents to six dollars. That's my bread and butter. That well, as soon as Taysa Karlov was spoiled, and EDH Rec is getting faster at putting the data up. Uh, it, now that we're um, we're tied in with uh, uh, Scryfall, we we just put the stuff up faster. Or like in because, in the case of Feather Aurelia's Fury. Yeah, yeah, fifty cents and to five was, bucks on buy list right now. And that was a card we had data for, like, right away, you know. Um, right. So we're, we're getting it faster at that. But for the most part, the obvious stuff is going to pop. And, like, that's the same high-stress stuff as standard. Intruder Alarm Spike, this, the day Vanifar was printed. Yep. I bought eight copies in data. Europe, like, an hour later. And, like, the deck's not really getting built that much. And the price is going back down. And yep. if you, like didn't get your copies right away and didn't out them. That's stressful. But there was other stuff in some of those decks, like in Tesa and Nikia, that didn't pop right away. And you needed EDH rec if you don't understand how EDH works to give you that data. You know, like some of the stuff for, for Tesa, like everybody identified Skull Clamp right away, you know, and uh, but it took a couple days for Hallowed Spirit Keeper. And, um, you know, it, it took a little bit longer for Grim Harris Bex to stop being uh, like a, a total bulk rare. And then, you know, later on people identified stuff like Regna and Twilight Drover. So even though you're going to like compete with some people really early on some of the obvious stuff, some of the non-obvious stuff is going to only materialize when people start building the deck and then later refining the decks, you know, and reposting their list. So, I think if you don't want to fight with people, there's still plenty of money to be made once people buy all the, uh, you know, all the the super obvious stuff. You need the full deck lists. You need 
you know, 700 lists and all of a sudden you're like, hey, this isn't, you know, 67% of the decks that's worth looking at. So I, I think even if you don't really understand EDH and, and even if you feel kind of that fear of missing out feeling in your stomach when you're like, oh, I should have bought Intruder Alarm. I, I still think there's plenty of money to be made waiting to see what people actually build. And, uh, you know, even stuff that was already good popped as a result of Tesa. Like Dictative Erebos went up a couple of bucks and that was predictable. So um, I, I don't look at the commanders. I look at the, the older cards that are basically their distribution is is basically set right you know the the number of copies that are in binders the number of copies that are in you know store inventories and other number of copies that are in people's decks that's known and the price is going to move solely based on this new inclusion in in the decks based on the new commander that right. kind of stuff i like a little bit better than like what new stuff is going to get slotted in where so well, i like the new stuff creating situations for old stuff to go up yeah, and I mean that's always going to be your best your best bet, anyways, right? Is something new like feather pops up, you don't rush to the new stuff. You go see what old cards it wants because those are where those the supply is going to be. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, I, you know, over overall, I think I think this is all very valid. Is that EDH rec is a is at the end of the day still just a data point, and it is it is a collection of data points, but it is itself a data point, and you have to have the context for that to be meaningful. Um, and I know both Jason and James and I are, are guilty of this at times, just kind of blowing past the EDH rec number. And it's not that we haven't necessarily considered the context, but we might not spend enough time discussing it, you know, because we this cast isn't long enough as it is. Um, and kind of explaining like, yeah, this is in 7,000 decks, but like, here's why that matters. Or it's only it's in 2,000 decks, but here's why that's not actually a problem. Um, and and it, it just goes to show that, Anyone can take a quick glance at EDH Rec and find cards that are in a lot of decks that might the price might seem too low, uh, but it, it does require a little bit more uh, nuance and familiarity with the arena to make good judgment value based on that those numbers because they don't tell the whole story. Otherwise, you just go buy every soul ring you can get because sure. that's in the most decks. And and again, you know, no need to be creative since soul rings do in fact make people money every single time they're released. Every time they're reprinted and go down in price, yeah, geez, I, I don't know, I don't know why anybody would buy anything other than Eternal Witness when it's in a set. Because <laughs> uh, I have to sell them. <laughs> you know how much? You know how much money I made buying Runescar Demon at a dollar? Like it's some of the stuff is just so easy. And on that reprint stuff, you look at how many decks it's in, you know, and sometimes you can make a a guess about what stuff is going to rebound faster than other stuff. You know, and it's uh, if it's a ton of copies in one deck, you know, it's maybe less likely to rebound in price versus a card that's just in a lot of different decks spread out because there are a lot of different chances for someone to build a new deck or a new thing to come along. The the less hyper spec uh, specific stuff, you know, it's going to do better because like Aurelius Fury whipsawed pretty well went up to like 11 and now it's back down to like five bucks already so if you didn't basically have them in hand or get them right away you probably didn't have a chance to make a ton of money on it versus you know something like smothering tithe is in feather decks but you know that's going to be in just best just about every white deck you you, you you made that point a couple days ago i don't know if it was another article or what but uh, i kind of took it to heart um and i was like oh you know that's a good point like 
This card could be extremely popular in Feather, but if you only want it in Feather, then why would you ever own more than one copies? But if it's a generically useful card, you're going to want more than one copy for your different decks, which dramatically increases the overall desire. And I thought your point about like whether you would break down an existing deck, like I have a Zada deck that I will change into Feather. I'm not building Feather on top of Zada, sure. but like other, and like you had made that point, I think about some of the Simic commanders, but in other, in other points, you'd be like, well, I want, these are different enough that I want two of them. Um, and those are a really good way to think about it too. Uh, so cre- credit, credit due there. Like versus, are you going to have a Varel deck and a Pier and Toothy deck when they, you know, what they do is, is roughly the same versus like, yeah, if you're building a Zuri because you want to take extra turns and stuff like that, it's, uh, you know, potentially you would want, I mean, I have six Simic decks, so don't listen to me about that sort of thing, but. So chances are you're not going to have a Zada and a Feather deck, like you said. So Jason, yeah. I, have a, I have a question that I believe I asked you maybe as much as two years ago, um, but I think it's it was a private conversation and it might be worth exploring here. You said that you guys used to get data from Tapped Out. Does that mean that there's a cutoff point where <clears throat> average decks per set reported is significantly lower from one group of sets to another, all other things considered equally? Um, because we're getting uh, data from fewer sources yeah. after a certain date. Um, potentially, but I, I think people are moving from tapped out to Architect uh, pretty rapidly right now because Architect is just a, a better site. So I, I think, yeah, the stuff that abs- exists on tapped out that we scraped versus the stuff that's there now that we're not getting um, is going to potentially make some of those uh, older decks look like there's they're being built more but um i think if you look at the new stuff that's used uh in, in the the newer sets relative to the other stuff in those sets uh that that effect is is attenuated and i think uh tapped out doesn't quite have the influence uh some people might think they do sure uh, it's a it, it was a good site for a while but i think um i think it's it's become obsolete Gotcha. And it's not because we're mad at them because like they just politely say, hey, don't use our data. And we're like, that's fine. Uh, but I think uh, every time you see it mentioned on uh, on the EDH subreddit, people are like, hey, remember, just a reminder, don't use tapped out because they don't report to EDH rec. So I think a lot of people are interested in having their their decks matter. And I think people like what Architect came along and did because it, it just came along later and, and improved on, on tapped out. So I, I think that effect is is attenuated but if you're looking at there could be some cards from like three or four months apart where there was that hard line where we stopped collecting from them um that that could be a thing but i i don't know what it would throw off per se okay if you have other ways to compare numbers to each other well i was wondering whether whether there was a cutoff where there's like one set per se after six months because of how much flow like deck reporting flow was coming through say your top card would average 1500 decks and then if you cut off that source, it dro- the average drops to 1,000. But in fact, both of those top cards are probably played the same amount. Because in the same you, proportion. Because, yeah, That's... because if you included the tapped out data, you would get back up to 1,500. That's certainly possible. I just, there's no way to say what percentage tapped out would influence that. I, yeah. I think that's possible, but... Um, I think if you're using EDH rec data a little more qualitatively than quantitatively, like I have learned sure. to do over the past couple of years, I think that doesn't matter as much because the number one card in the set is still the number one card in the set. Yeah. And I think that it's important. 
I would say that the num- the number one way I use the site to spec is on the set pages, comparing the relative usage patterns, as you said, and then looking through, like starting at the most popular cards. So for instance, with War of the Spark, currently it's Karn's Bastion. Fits in a ton of different decks. It's colorless and it makes mana without coming into play tapped. So it's got a lot of legs. Um, and then I just start filtering by rarity obviously the most important which mythic is most likely to pop and has it you know is it seeing play somewhere else that already has it high or might it drop really low and then eventually the commander players will pick it up and start running with it um another comment i wanted to run by you was are you seeing the same thing i'm seeing that war the spark is going to be an exceedingly deep pool of edh resources yeah if you look at the the way the stuff spread out, um, it, it looks like there's no one or two cards that are running away with it. And either that means the stuff's all not getting used or the stuff's all getting used a lot. It's going to be tough to figure out what the prices from the set are going to be because we're seeing like Kefnet get to like 20 bucks, which is good. But you know, there's so many two and three and four dollar cards that like a box is never going to be three hundred dollars. So therefore, some of the stuff's just going to be cheaper than you'd expect, because the box price tends to, you know, influence the set price. So the set's going to be worth a, a specific amount. You know, you can have a hundred dollar box in a set with ten twenty five dollar mythics. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. Not, not in the short so, term, but one of the things I'm wondering yeah. is when this set goes out of print, I believe that War of the Spark has a better chance than any standard box I can think of except maybe Kaladesh, um, both because it had a ton of artifact staples and because it has master, yeah. the best masterpieces in it, um, to hit like 140, 160, maybe even push 180, say three years out. Oh, yeah, this is uh, this is Innistrad tier, the set. Yeah. They're, they're, just in terms of stuff for outside of standard that's that's going to matter. I, and I think that a lot of it hinges on the number of uncommon planeswalkers that are extremely playable. That where we're already seeing 10 and 20 dollar foils for things like Narset Parter of the Veils and Ashiok Dream Render, which are also in the top 5 by the way, Travis. Well, Narset's top 5, Ashiok 6th. Yeah, 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 give us some time. But give us some There's time. stuff here that's going to get played forever though. Casualties of War is like the best card of that elk that's ever been printed yeah you know, yeah yeah yeah. dovin's veto is going to get played in all kinds of formats yeah and casualties you know, of war is like what your seven twenty eighth most played card reported right now yeah but what's blow, blowing my mind is how many cards are already over a hundred it's J- jing yang yu wildcrafter is actually down near like 60th or something and he's right there at the, the 105 level so there are 60 cards in this set that look like they could post up as reasonable, like something you could reasonably call an EDH stable. Like, would you agree you're probably 5,000 is like significant play and then anything beyond that starts to get into like mega staples? Yeah, I could, I could see that. Right. Although anything that like, there's going to be cards that are in 10,000 decks because they're just in Atraxa. So like it pays to know that kind of thing too. And it also pays to... <laughs> To take note if something was in a pre-con, because like people will register a deck even if they haven't built it yet. That's going to include more cards from the pre-con than they would typically include. Sure. Um, or I think when people build from the pre-con, they have a tendency to start with a pre-con, t- take cards out, and then replace those cards. 
So if they started from zero cards, they wouldn't play some of the stuff that's in the precon. But it seems just good enough not to take out and replace with something else. So I think the first version of the deck is going to include more precon cards than maybe the second version of the deck that they don't register or doesn't get picked up. So I think uh, there's a bias towards cards that are in precons, and that's not a weakness of EDH rec per se, but that is something to know about. How, how do you feel about the top five right now? We got Karns Bastion, Bolas Citadel, Liliana Dreadhorde General, Evolution Sage, and Narset Parter of Veils. I think Karns Bastion is going to drop out of the top five. Okay. Uh, I think Liliana also. Um, I think Flux Channeler is probably going to end up closer to Evolution Sage than it is right now. Um, I think Spark Double probably Spark Double probably drops because you have to copy your own stuff, and I don't think people are grasping that yet. Um, but I think Evolution Sage, Flux Channeler, Bolas's Citadel, and Narset are top five cards probably moving forward. Uh, you think I would Bolas's have expected Citadel is what's that? Bolas's Citadel, you think is a top five? I think it's bannably good in EDH. Really? Yeah, I think the C C E D H version of that deck is probably ridiculous yeah it's there are there it's already on the uh the the edh rec rules committee watch list yeah i mean i'm totally buying russian foil spark doubles because i absolutely want to double atraxa so (laughs) that's just gonna happen um but yeah i like i mean i i argued with travis last week that narset and ashiok we're going to see even though they are like you can't have fun cards we're still going to get thrown into decks left, right, and center. Um, Ashiok's really, really just nuts because you you exile their graveyard, even if you're not trying to mill them out. Like minus one exile target player's graveyard is actually good in EDH. Yeah, I I, I want to be clear that I was not saying that. I said Ashiok stood a chance. It was uh, Narset, Narset and Mukarn that I was more a lot more lukewarm on. Yeah, your your arguments on Karn are makes sense i mean the same thing that jason said that that a piece of text is that can't be used as a feel bad um even if there are ways to go around it by fooling around with things in exile um because he can grab from exile not just from the wishboard but i mean nisa who shakes the world to me seems like definitely going to be a major a major card for a long time to fairy time raveler sahili sublime artificer um you said sahili sublime artificer Sublime. <laughs> Sublime. 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 I don't I'm going fast here. <laughs> I'm going fast. Uh, yeah, Flux, Flux Channeler and Evolution Sage, too. Those just seem like obvious to me. And Finale of Devastation is probably going to get nice and low well, Evolution here. Sage, it's in a color where you can play Boundless Realms yeah. and just win the game that turn. It's, it's, it's just... That at Uncommon is really going to throw off the value of the set. Cause I, I think evolution sage is like a two, $3 card soon. Right. So like how, how can you have a $20 mythic in a set with $32 on commons? And we are going to definitely see really some whipsaw tough. here because it's sold out. The set is essentially sold out. Wizards yeah. has that tendency to submarine their first wave. Cause they want it, things to seem rare. And they want to drive up singles prices for long enough for vendors to make money. So that's the normal practice. And in this case, because the set is so good and so well received, it is essentially out of stock. And then you've got this whole Japanese thing going on, which is a whole other level of crazy, where you've got foil alt art Japanese um, uncommons selling for 100 plus. 
Yeah. Yeah. Pr- prices are on this are on this set are going to be real. Like you're going to look at them and be like, I don't understand how these prices work on a standard box for about what a month, two months. I think we're probably looking at by the yeah. time you hit August supply will have dramatically caught up and the market's going to have a zillion of these things and prices will drop. Um, but I, I mean, I agree with the, the, the kind of the wisdom of at the moment that, um, you know, two, three years out, this set is going to be real rich and sealed. Like we're in the first couple of weeks of release. And Evolution Sage foils are available for $8, and Card Kingdom will already give you six fifty in credit for an uncommon foil. Yeah. That's bonkers. I think, I think sometimes that stuff loses a lot of uh, velocity, too. Not only as supply increases over time, um, but the people who... You have a lot of people who want Evolution Sage right now, and then they're all going to buy them. Yeah. And then all of that huge group of people who wanted them now have them. And you will continue to add people who need them, but you lose, like, you've already satiated that first wave of demand as all of that extra supply is coming into the market. Well, and the demand is directly linked to the hype cycle. So while you're in the pocket on the War of the Spark hype cycle, you are alerting people to the cards. Once you move on to the next thing, and we've got, and this is why I think this card, this set is going to be so interesting. If this had been a fall set, I'd be way less excited. There'd be le- way more of it opened. It would be drafted for way longer, and it would have far less competition in the market. But it being heading into summer and heading into Modern Horizons, which is probably going to be a bonker set, um, s- signals to me that as as much as it is a bestseller, maybe the best-selling Magic set of all time. By mid-June, July, August, it may have slowed dramatically in the face of both the, the Commander decks, remember, don't come out in the late fall anymore. They're in the summer. Um, we've also got the Core set, and we've got Modern Horizons to chew up money. So, I mean, it's going to be, at minimum, splitting wallet budgets between those four things. And Commander decks not being around Christmas, is that's insane to me. I don't understand that logic at all. Well, I was yeah. like the... That was like the perfect thing to ask for for Christmas for a lot of people. And those gift sets they put around the holidays are crap. And people's grandparents buy them for them because, you know, they yeah. don't know anything about them other than yeah. they like magic. And they just, they're I mean, just selling such crap products around Christmas time. My theory the is within, deck should be in that slot. My theory is within the year we're going to see a very commander oriented premium product. Like a commander's arsenal type thing at $300. <laughs> like the commander's arsenal they made at $300. Well, no, the MSRP on that was significantly less, but there was so little of it, it hit that almost immediately. Uh, right, right. But that right. was only like, what, 15 cards or something? I'm talking about yep. like a box full of cards. The old uh, box I mean, full of cards. Gavin hinted on Brainstorm Brewery um, that, uh, that they aren't done supporting Brawl, and he thinks they ran it out a little bit prematurely, and some of the support for it lagged. You know, so they maybe launched a little early and then people weren't into it and then it didn't sustain itself long enough. So I think maybe something to support Brawl might be coming, but (sighs) Brawl rotating sucks. Yeah. So I think that's the I don't think it's bad as a format, but I think it it's going to be hard to sustain because people aren't going to want to. Nobody wants a half-ass Brawl deck. The, The theory was people would have their standard cards they weren't using and they could do something with them before they rotated you know instead of just being like well i'm not playing this in standard or i don't play standard but i 
why would I buy a standard box? It's a way to get EDH players to like care about new products. Yep. But at the same time, EDH players don't like rotation. Yep. <laughs> and that and that's the the dynamic tension, right? You you hit it right on the uh, the nails right on the head. One two. It's it absolutely was about drawing attention to standard product for commanders and casuals, and absolutely doesn't line up well when compared to their option to just play commander. So. Yep. So it, it'll be interesting to if they do put out a good product to support Brawl, uh, whether that is enough. Also worth pointing out that Gavin at some point was na- was basically hint dropping that commander sets this summer are going to be juiced. Like that they're going to back off being scared of piling a bunch of EV into them. Yep. So that could certainly hurt some card prices. Uh, that's so dumb. I'm I I am so over. I just really dislike I I dislike the commander product in general. Like from a enjoying the format perspective, I dislike it because I, it was a lot more interesting when you had to figure out how to make a deck work. Um, and then they just started printing cards that were like, here you go, this is a commander card. Like it's in a standard set, but this is a commander card. And it's like this isn't fun. Like you've taken all the excitement out of like trying to build something, and now it's just a pick the top thirty cards from each color, and now you have an, an EDH deck. I, I just Sam Black talked about it too. I, I think he was right on the money with that. Sure, but the thing is, like we we've it all had to teach somebody. Playing, yeah, I mean you, you've got to bring somebody into the fold, and I've played with people that are nerdy enough to be willing to try anything I put in front of them, but know nothing about Magic, have never touched it before, and if you're gonna start them on commander it's got like first of all that's debatable whether that's even smart but if you're going to start them on commander you can't expect them to build a deck you've got to yeah i got to hand them something to play i I am not saying at all that it was a bad decision their decision was bad i'm just saying as somebody as an enfranchised player it was disappointing you'd rather see something that was like tweaked to the like long-term commander player I, i i wish that they did not have they? I wish that they would never design a card with Commander in mind. Hmm. Oh, because don't. then you have to figure out cool ways to make existing cards bend to a different purpose. I mean, the, the only thing that, that I am afeard of in a juice Commander product is that they're putting foils in it. <laughs> if, if they no, have they're just random... Gonna, they're going to put $25 cards in there because it's yeah. okay to do that. Yeah, that's my assumption. But I, I also live in mortal terror that one day they will start. They will announce a product that has a whole bunch of commander foils. It's not just a like five reprints in a random master set. Uh, That's gonna be a bummer. Since I have a ton of said same inventory at any given time. Yeah, I, if if they start, I'm printing... really worried about some dude at Hasbro. They're like, man, you really knocked Angry Birds Monopoly out of the park. So we're promoting you and you're going to go do this now and they're going to not know dick about magic and they're going to go to three meetings and they're going to be like, all right, do this now. I'm so worried about Hasbro meddling and making wizards make bad decisions. It just, it bums me out. Having something half understood by them and then they turn around and tell, make a decision. Well, I mean, that kind of bums me out. Well, I mean, just think about it in these terms. Hasbro Pulse is the website Hasbro launched to do special edition launches. They did not launch Mythic Edition 3 on their own site, clearly because they don't trust their own technology. And that site just launched in January. It's where you well, could, that... it's where they sold the uh, the Star Wars skiff, the like Jabba's skiff that they sold for $450 or whatever it was. That's excusable in the idea that it only launched in January and they knew that it wasn't up to snuff yet. Uh, I can buy that. Sure, I'm not surprised However, that I'm not surprised it doesn't work because it's them. 
What I'm saying is, as one of the largest toy companies on the planet, they have never been good at technology, and it continues to undermine their ability to execute on strategy. True. Yeah. All right, I'm getting hungry. So any last thoughts, Jason, especially, before we wrap up here? Um, yeah, I, I think you guys should uh, maybe take a few seconds to, to, to justify your EDH stuff a little bit better. Because I don't want you guys to get caught up in this blanket statement that uh, whenever I see someone just have a, a, a list of reasons why they think a car could go up and then they throw out the raw number of decks it's in, I just assume they're full of shit. And I don't want you guys <laughs> to get caught up in that because clearly you've thought more about it and not everyone has. So <laughs> I don't want to I want I don't want you guys to get caught up in the sweeping statements that I make. Well, and what you're really saying <laughs> is that it's important that what you're really saying is it's important that the listeners and the pro traders understand the correct logic to use when exploring this data. And my articles are free to read after 48 hours, so yep, true if that. you're a little bit lost, I, I talk a little bit about it every week. I feel like if you read my articles for a month, I would talk about everything that's important at least once. And uh, if you're a pro trader, you get my articles 48 hours early, and I'm noticing stuff that uh, other people aren't noticing, and you can have a real jump on it. So I mean, my, that's me pitching all the things I care about all at once. <laughs> my, my simplest li- <laughs> I no- Notably missing Brainstorm Brewery. <laughs> And my children. <laughs> my, my simplest litmus test is that you have made me a bunch of money. <laughs> so I have no doubts whatsoever about your talents. I, you know, I don't remember which cards of Jason's I have bought that I have profited on. I'm sure they exist. I just don't remember them. But I, every week, see that box of clerics. <laughs> I don't remember exactly what the moment was. But I'm sure that Jason contributed to me going very deep on Smothering Tithe. Um. Mm, which yeah. is certainly going to be it. And those those clerics were me assuming I knew more about what people would do and not waiting. And now that I wait for the day, clerics were my, oh shit, Vanifar just got spoiled moment. And, uh, you know, all the stuff I called from Nikia that went up was my, I'm using EDH rec date and seeing what people are actually playing moment. Sure. Yeah. Yep. The clerics was a real learning moment for me. And I've refined my method since that was very early in me writing for, uh, MTG price about EDH versus just writing general finance articles. Yeah. Well, I think it was completely fine. I just feel like I have to tease you about it every time I get the opportunity. Oh yeah, and it's fine. You should because hey, we all stuff like that. We've all gotten better over time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, learning right. a lesson at your expense is much better than. Uh, <laughs> That's a very well put. All right. All right. Uh, Jason, where can our listeners find you if they if want you to hear to, your content, read if, your content, smell your content? If you go to Jason E. Alt on Twitter, I have a pin post where I list all the projects I work on. I'm a writer for MTG Price. Uh, I am a member of the Brainstorm Brewery podcast. I write for Cool Stuff Inc. about EDH, the 75% EDH theory, which I, you know, I've been on various podcasts talking about. Uh, I have a podcast called Director's Cut with John Dunning from the They Said We Said Network where we talk about movies. It's refreshing if you're sick of me talking about magic all the time. And uh, did I mention Brainstorm Brewery, the other finance podcast? I'm a member of that podcast. The Progenitor uh, podcast? The the oldest and the grandest? The OG. Yep. The first to market. And that's all that matters. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) yep. So I do all that stuff. And... uh, 
it's a lot of fun. I'm very busy in a given week, and thanks all of you for allowing me to make money not having a real job. Even <laughs> I could have one if I wanted. Uh, you're a, you're a pillar of the community, and we thank you for your presence. Yeah. All right, Jace or uh, James, how about you? You guys can find me on Twitter at MGG Critic, as well as via my occasional articles on MGGPrice.com, and you can always find me haunting the Pro Trader Discord. Uh, and I am Travis Allen, Wizard Bumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N, on Twitter, and I write every Monday at MTGPrice.com doing the Watchtower series. Yeah, you do. Let's see. I do it. Uh, I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com pro trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a super, super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Do you want to yeah. do our credit giveaway here? Yeah, I'm just looking. I was just distracted for a second there because I, I realized that we need to find somebody that's actually hanging out and give them something free. Okay. Let me just pull them up. Well, he's looking. I'm going to tell you that once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool stuff in stock, including the best in Magic Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support our podcast. And, and the, read my articles. And yeah, keep Jason's articles. from Cool Stuff so you get the, uh, the discount over time. Yep. And the $25 gift certificate for this week from our sponsor, Cool Stuff Inc., goes to Rakana, R-A-Q-A-N-A, hanging out in the Pro Trader Discord while we are recording. So I will contact you right now and let you know to go spend tons of money with our sponsors so they will be happy. All right. Uh, I had a great time, Jason. Thank you again so much for joining us all. I want all of our listeners to make sure they check out Brains from Brewery, but I can't imagine they wouldn't have already. Uh, and I already decided whether or not they wanted to continue listening. I get it. <laughs> and James, thanks again for uh, for this week's episode, and I will be glad to do it again next week. Thank you, guys, and we'll see you next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. <laughs>